Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls. I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. All right, everybody, joined today by a number of esteemed guests, but the most esteemed of all, Jay Scott, Colburn and Scott Outfitters. Do you guys still go by that name? Yep, we do. We're always getting people asking about recommended guides and whatnot. Uh, can't go wrong with Jay. Limit, limited inventory, though, right? Yeah, pretty much. No. This man to take a bullet for you. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I feel like um, if someone can, like, uh, I, I feel in terms of, and I don't have, I don't have like tremendous amount of experience around the big game guys, but I got enough. I feel like you have to be, if someone's going to rate them out in terms of organized, not overselling, like very careful, uh, not I don't mean value, like trying to like create like a low dollar value, but like very cognizant of the money, like what the expectations are of the money being spent. Sure. It's probably because you don't have any, um, there's no desperation about you. Well, we have a great team. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm surrounded by really good people. And I think that's a huge part of it. Um, a huge part of our success is, is having, you know, from all the way from, you know, people that help people cross the border to cooks, to guides, um, you know, surrounded with a good team, it really helps. But I think, you know, I think one of the things outfitters over the years have kind of gotten a a bad rap, if you will, is the expectations of the hunters coming maybe are too high. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what I try and do is paint a picture of exactly what they should expect. And it's kind of a bar that we try and uphold. Yeah. And so... And you've been at it long enough to kind of know what to expect. Yeah. Um, we just finished our 26th season in Mexico, and um, it's been an unbelievable ride. It's hard to even believe 26 years. 
Uh, but you know, Mexico's an unbelievable country and we do coups and Goulds hunts down there, Goulds turkeys. Um, and it's, it's something that I enjoy. I hope I get to do for a long, long time. It's, uh, Phelps and I were talking about this. Um, it's like the good old days. No, I can't remember. Some, one of us were talking about this. I'll introduce everybody else, but, uh, we're like, it's the good old days right now. I'm going to ask you about what would, what ways in which it could, the good old days could end right now. There's got to be ways in which the good old days would end. But right now, well, I think for we'll, like ghouls and coups and stuff in Mexico, like spitting distance from the U.S. border is like the good old days. One of the things that I think is so unbelievable and all of you guys have been to Mexico is to me, it feels like you're going back in time a hundred years. Oh. And it feels like it's pure hunting to me. It feels like, you know, you've, you've kind of left your cell phones behind and you're just with your buddies and you're just out there. You know, there's coyotes yipping and there's maybe turkeys yelping or, and, and, you know, there's, there's javelina fighting and it's like, you can kind of get out there. There's five miles off. There's a guy walking a donkey with a scabbard lever action and you can sit and talk for 20 minutes about what in the world was that guy doing? Yeah. And he's (laughs) just smiling the whole time. And you know, you you see things that you're like running fence lines or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's literally like going back in time a hundred years and I feel like that working cattle off horseback. It's like. Yeah, and the way of life is so simple. I think that that's one of the things that draws me to Mexico is the adventure. Um, not that we don't have adventure here in the U.S., but it just feels like the old days. Yeah. It feels like old times. It feels like, you know, almost like you're looking around for wagons to be going by and, you know, horse-drawn buggy type yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's really like that transition is so immediate. And you can look off and see one of those border... You see the blimp The border there. blimp, yeah. which is sp- like... Perhaps the most technologically sophisticated yeah. thing you're going to look at for months. Yeah, you can see <laughs> that with one eye and the other, you feel like you're back in the 1800s. Yeah. Oh, that's wild. Uh, we're, we're going to get into all that uh, in, in much greater detail with, uh, with again, a highly esteemed guest, uh, Jay Scott. Phelps is here. Yep. In his Phelps hoodie. Got anything to say for yourself? No. Just keep it real simple today. Um, yeah, until, yeah, I'm going to keep it right there. Phil, you might as well unhook that mic. it's like wasting that mic's wasting electricity uh phil of course callahan of course yeah are you gonna say something zippy i uh no no well i mean come on we got we got all sorts of awesome stuff to talk about season 10 just Mm -hmm. dropped right that's right that's why callahan's here we're gonna talk about that garrett long what's up that was good and of course paul lewis from uh fhf gear I'm here. Second time on the show. Second time. One of my absolute favorite human beings on the planet, Is particularly right? right now. You know, because he uh, uh, he's always always open. Doesn't and run around spewing a bunch of bullshit. I can tell you that. <laughs> open to new ideas, <laughs> and uh, we we got new projects in the works that we're in the R and D phase. For. Are you guys are you guys doing R and D together? Yeah. Yeah. He woke me up yeah. out of bed the other morning and uh, said, "Hey, I have an idea." Is that so, a is that a uh, rear rest? No. Could it, it could be. It could be. Is it, it a business too. card holder? It could be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the FHF business card holder what's the, for what's everybody. The pla- what's the plastic window on the side? Well, um, you signed an NDA and we'll get back to you on that. Oh, really? <laughs> he could tell you, but he'd have to kill you. No. You going to tell me? You called Paul in the middle of the night tell him about that bag? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I will I will tell you, but we got, um, we can't do it on, on live on the air. Oh, come on. Let me see the bag. Oh, well, take a look at the bag. 
It's a this ha- is it's right a up your alley. This is, this is core FHF, core <laughs> Steven Ranella organizational items. It's a hamster holder? What'd you say it was? <laughs> it's an organizational item. No, I thought Garrett said it was a hamster holder. Oh, so that is a little place where you put stuff. <laughs> mm, <all sorts laughs> <of> stuff. <laughs> There's a spot for a label. Keeps things nicey-nice in the parlance of Oh. Ranella. Well, if it keeps stuff nicey-nice, I'll take 10. <laughs> is this what you think about at night when you're laying in bed? I, if I'm the type of person that um, occasionally does have good ideas, but if I don't immediately transmit those, then they're gone. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I do think there's going to be like 10 of those in Steve's truck here by the end of the day because... I'm excited about them now. Yeah. I like keep myself organized. and It, uh, it has something to do with shotgun shells. Oh, For the listening audience. That's a great idea. <laughs> it's a great idea. I already got it. It's not hamsters. <laughs> <laughs> it's better. Although it could double. <laughs> uh, Paul, where's stuff at with the new rifle sling right now, man? Uh, they are in production right now. We uh, Can you go have, pre-order one? You can't pre-order yet, uh, but we were waiting on the the swivels is what the holdup was. And they're all U.S. made, and there was a steel. It was hard to get steel, so hmm. that was Even that little holdup. dinky bit of steel. And a little bitty piece of steel. Because like one so. I-beam would make. Right. Um, yeah, we ordered quite a few of them, though, and they're, they're in production as we speak. So hopefully we'll see them. What's it called? Tell, tell people the name of the sling. Uh, does it have a zippy name? It, it doesn't. It's probably rifle sling at this point. So, um, it's See, uh, no bullshit. Yeah. I don't, none of the names we have are, are real zippy. So if you've been waiting to, uh, if you're going to get a new rifle sling or like need a new one or just want one, I would check this. This is a great rifle sling. Yeah. And it's got, so the, the page is live on the site right now, uh, where you can sign up for notification as soon as we get them. Um, we aren't taking pre-orders, but you can definitely sign up. So your email you know, you'll get an email drop as soon as, as soon as they hit the site. Yeah. Well, you got, it's got like a little clip. What do you kind of, what do you call those clips? Like a buckle? I don't know. Yeah. It's just a buckle. And it, it's got a clip where it clips to your backpack. Like there's a, the, the, is it the male end or the female end clips to your backpack? The male end. The male end's connected to your pack. So there's a male end of a clip. It's the same kind of clip that you'd have, you know, on a, on the, like on a sternum, here, man. like on a sternum strap, or yeah, something. Little, on a sternum strap bigger. of your backpack, like same basic idea, right? So, the male end of that clips up to where your backpack shoulder strap joins your backpack, and it just hangs out there, like you don't even know it's there. But then when you sling the rifle, you can just click that into the sling itself, mm-hmm. and then for like jumping, crawling, whatever, it just stays glued there. Yep. And it stays on your pack. It stays on your shoulder great anyways, but that little clip and then just one hand you can reach up, free it fast. Yep, and it's it's got an additional uh strap on the bottom so you can click the the bottom end of the rifle to the your waist pack or your waist belt as well if you want to. I know you don't typically run it like that, but I like to run it up there. It takes the weight of that rifle off your Yeah, I do in the dark, but not in the daytime. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, my, definitely speeds it up. My wife loved that um, that little guide, too, that you put on your shoulder strap of your yeah. backpack. Because one thing I've never thought about is you look at her and, like, she's got her backpack on and there's no shoulders that come outside of her backpack straps. So she puts her sling on, right? Oh. And it's just, like, it's constantly falling off of her backpack. Yeah. There's no extra yeah, There's no clip, extra bone and meat. Yeah, you, there, like, yeah. clip that in there and put the guide up and it just stays riding there all day. Yep. She yep. loved it. Yeah, definitely kind of an optional clip, but that'll that'll be included in the sling. But yeah, I use it all the time, both both buckles and the clip. But definitely, 
lets you keep less tension on the sling itself and hold that sling steady and not move around. You guys notice how in the, in the talking uh, points, I have a note that says divorce and my wife. <laughs> I said <seen> that. <laughs> Dude, listen. Go on. Listen. She like put, so she puts our kids in, in some kind of ski thing up on the ski hill for nine Saturdays in a row. <laughs> and every Saturday, I'm like, well, I was gonna, we were going to go ice fishing this Saturday. Oh, no, I already paid. I already paid. Can't now, I already paid. There needs to be a way you pay to go ice fishing. That's ice fishing's great problem. There's no one to pay. Because if I could go in and be like, oh, no, I already paid. I paid for them to ice fish 12 Saturdays in a row this winter. We got six clinics lined up. I know. It's like that. Yeah, it's like in her mind, it's like inviolable. They have to go because she paid. (laughs) And it's like, I'm like, well, I'm sorry. I don't know who to pay. I don't, I didn't know who to pay to make it that we could ice fish on Saturdays. (laughs) It's the stupidest thing in the world. (laughs) And Brody's wife did the same thing with his boys. I just feel so bad for these kids. Their options. I mean, it just is so maddening to me. Go man. skiing. The whole skiing thing is so fishing. stupid. It's like, it's like I get it for kids. The, the primary you go down a hill, you're like wee wee. But like at a certain point, that place is mostly full of grownups. Do you think the Olympic athletes make that same noise? I'm sure they they're... do. It just is driving me crazy that we're they're missing out on nine Saturdays of ice fishing. Yeah, you need to like rent a cabin. Or something like that. That I pay for. That you pay, yeah. Rent it on, on a lake or something like that and be like, oh, I already got a camera. No, no, no. Sorry, we can't do ski this year because I already yeah. paid for ice fishing. Yeah. Rent a snow bear. There you go. Because yeah. they get free. They're, at their age, their, their licenses are free, so I can't say I paid right, for their licenses. Right. Yeah. You got to get a cabin. No, there's no one to pay. We're going to have to call David Wise and just ask him. One question, Dave. Uh, what what noise do you make when you go down oh, the it's, half pipe? <laughs> Gravity's working. Gravity's working. <laughs> it's so like when I was a little kid, I liked to go sledding. But I mean, sometimes you move you move on. It's like I would I would like shit my diapers. I did that for a while. <laughs> then I sledded for a while, and like I got over it. It's like yes, gravity pulls you down slick slopes. <laughs> it's like I don't care. <laughs> God, man. Uh, did you guys see that giant bobcat Yanni just got? Did look like a big cat. 25 pound bobcat. Really? Well, then Phelps won. Tell him, one up him, Phelps. Phelps one up him already. Well, we just caught one back in a cubby set <laughs> way back in Washington that was 33. Whoa. But it was a giant. But our, our cats are so ugly back home. That was the thing is, um, Yanni's cat, you just wanted to bury your face in that thing. Yeah. Because they got the big, what makes a bobcat in the, what makes it cool and valuable is the, if it's got Spot. the, Yes, like a clean white belly with well-defined yep. black spots. And uh, it's funny about bobcats is, you know, a few years ago, and it, it, this stuff's always exaggerated. Like like a few years ago, cats were exceptionally high. And everybody would run around being like, bobcats worth $1,100. Because like maybe like one bobcat sold for $1,100. So then it becomes that every bobcat on the planet is worth $1,100. So I don't really know. They're very valuable. It was like, a lot of guys were getting like $600, $800 for high elevation Western Bobcats. At the same time, a Bobcat from my home state of Michigan would be worth $15 because they don't have that belly. Yep. They're just, Why? Why don't they? You know, I don't know, man. Uh, I was texting about a similar thing with our, our good friend and your fellow Arizonan, James Heffelfinger, this morning. Where he knows a little bit about the stuff. 
Yep. <laughs> this morning, I sent them a picture. A kid had sent me a picture of a deer he killed in Florida that had like that crazy black mask. Um, and Heffelfinger's like, it, it just a, seems like a Florida thing, man. Like deer that have some weird throwback to when they, at a point when they had face markings, like like dark facial markings. And he said, in that area, it's common to get them with varying degrees of black marks. And I don't know if it has something to do with, um, it'd be an interesting thing to take a bobcat, you know, from 9,000 feet in Wyoming and send them to Michigan and, and would his progeny wind up having not spots? Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I caught a little teeny bobcat. Like teeny teeny. Um but that one was, slipper. But that yeah, one slipper. But that was an impressive one that Yanni's got. And they're filming a thing right now about hound hunting. They're out hound hunting for lions and Yanni's got his pound puppy dog and Mingus. Mingus. So that'd be part of that. Well, Giannis was giving all the credit to um, uh, Jake's dogs. Well, so, I think he's got like some like unbelievable dogs. Okay. And so Mingus must not have been in there mixing it up on that one. Yeah, I don't know. But Yanni's pretty modest about that. I mean, he's a pound dog. I think if he would, if Yanni would go out, like his, he got the dog for his kids. And then sort of after the fact, wanted to make it like a lion hound. I think if he had started out, right, getting a lion hound from one of his lion hound friends, he'd be in a different place right now. Agree to a certain degree. I mean, a a hound's brain is dedicated to that nose. So Mm -hmm. I think think that breed of all uh, is going to probably put, it's going to be chasing something. Yeah. Like you can kind of get on board or, or not, you know. When that dog comes in, like when we're staying somewhere and I have my duffel bag and that dog comes in, it spends, it devotes about an hour and a half to your duffel bag. I'm like, <laughs> what? What? Just hmm. like yeah. every single thing in there. I'm like, you know, most dogs that come in and do like a once over, but no, he just unpacks it. Right. With his nose. If, if he's could, getting information off that thing that's like from the last guy that owned it. Right. If you could like plug in like a ticker tape <laughs> thing and just be like, just peeling out rolls of information. Yeah. It makes you self conscious. Yeah. Delta, United. Oh, Michigan, Arkansas. So right now, live and available, part two of season 10. So season 10 equals 10 episodes. Part two just hit up at Netflix. Um, so we're gonna do a few questions. The questions already poured in. Cal's going to handle the questions with me. Let me put my spectacles on. Here's one for you, Cal. Why do you look like a turtle that lost his shell when you're wearing a wetsuit? <laughs> I think that has to do with the, y- your skin tone, perhaps. Oh yeah. I mean, you got real Irish lineage. We aren't known for deep <laughs> tans i suppose um and uh i I am in case you didn't notice balding at a rapid rate that's accelerated since the eighth grade and yeah when did the first hair come out well it wasn't so much that i just always had like real like the pits like the recessed 
Mm. Um, Widow Peak. What Widow, Widow's Peak. Yeah. Yeah. What does that mean? And so I, I don't know where it comes from, but is it like an architecture thing? Probably. Yeah. Um, like I used to have like long curly hair, believe it or not. And so you look like the comedian Gallagher. But I could always like grab that mop and pull it back, and people would just be astounded at how far in the skin went mm-hmm. to the hairline. How old were you when you were bald? Like bald, bald. Well, I was 21, slick bald. Really? Yeah, I mean, this is as, as you know, as, I suppose as bald as, as I've ever been. But, <laughs> uh, no, but what age? Like it hasn't come back at all. <laughs> at what age did you look in the mirror and you're like, I'm bald. Jay, you went bald at 21. Slick bald at 21. 21. And it went yeah. like that. Really? I would say in probably a year, went from like, I think I'm losing my hair to bald. Whoa. Yeah. So that's why I was curious about it. So did, you, nice did you start to shave and then you went like Michael Stipe then? Just went short. Yeah. 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 No, I, I got uh, plenty of unsolicited feedback as to I should just shave my head. Yeah. Well, you normally do, but now you kind of got the, the little side deal going on. Oh, the tonsure. That's what monks would call it. Oh. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm aware of that. It's just I shave my own head and kind of gets knocked knocked down the list. Uh, next Paul, question. you don't have a hell of a lot of hair. <laughs> I don't. No. When did it yours fall out? Started probably 26, and then oh. same as uh, Cal, a lot of uh, unsolicited comments that I should probably, uh, probably just uh, get it over with. Right. Phelps? 25 to 30 was a bad, bad stretch for my hair. <laughs> the hairline hair quickly moved back over those five years. Yeah, look at Phil down there, man. Just full head of hair. Oh, cocky as all get out. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Looking at all these bald guys in here right now. Uh, um, yeah, I think that's where the, the turtle comp, you know, it's a dark wetsuit, bald head. I, yeah, sure. That's a great association. There's a great detail from the Battle of the Little Bighorn where it was a lot of Irishmen like yourself that died that day um, with Custer. And there's a detail that the next day, some soldiers were coming up the valley and they didn't know what happened. And they saw on the hillside brown splotches, brown things on a hillside, and they saw pure white things stained in blood on a hillside. They thought that the, that the Custer's command must have caught the Sioux and Cheyenne in the midst of a buffalo hunt and that what they were seeing was buffalo hides laid out and then the white fat of buffalo streaked in blood. Upon closer inspection, it was dead horses and stripped and mutilated Irishmen. And that white skin was so white it looked like buffalo fat. You think about that, Cal? It certainly lines up. I mean, (laughs) I remember looking at my grandpa's legs, you know, he'd like cross his legs and his uh, slacks would ride up a little bit and just being kind of horrified. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. In awe, like a translucent type of situation there. Like it's just been, just hadn't, has not seen vitamin D in decades. So another question that came in is what's up with Danny's neck hair? I have no idea. I, I spent no days with that man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are the same folks that give you unsolicited advice on how to cut your hair because you're not doing yourself any favors, right? And they're like, well, look at that neck hair. Yeah. Uh. That guy. 
Why on earth did Robert Abernathy throw raisins in his wild turkey salad? I'll point out that that's the question of a not very uh, careful observer. I think he threw cherries into that. So here's my question to you. Why can't you pay better attention? (laughs) (laughs) Put in all this time and effort, make show. (laughs) Don't pay attention to the details. When was the last time I ate a steak? I eat them all the time. I'm I'm sure the question is beef steak. Yeah, they're skinny shaming me. Yep. It's still okay to skinny shame people. (laughs) It is. It's the last thing. The last thing you'll be able to do is you'll be able to ridicule poor Southern males. Like that'll never, you'll always be able to do that. Like you'll be always be able to ridicule on movies or whatever. You'll be able to ridicule poor Southern males and everyone will always think that's funny. Like they'll never get like, Oh, you shouldn't do that. That's terrible. It's like, they'll, they'll always be a target. Yeah. But didn't we They're talk about neck. this on the, uh, on the trip and that you'll always, the, 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 the people, no one, no, no matter how woke society gets, they'll still think it's a good idea to ridicule poor Southern males. We yeah, talked about no, this. No, I, I was thinking that it was like a deal where someone's trying to give you a compliment, but they're like making a little under. Oh, we talked about be, how you can still skinny shame. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just got skinny shamed by two women. Right. And I don't, I don't think they're trying to shame you. I think they're like trying to compliment but then be mm-mm, like, oh, mm-mm. you're too skinny. No. Like Jason and I were saying how we get told all the time, like, God, you're just too ripped. Like you got too much muscle going on. Yeah. That's <laughs> not what it is. I, I, don't, I don't remember the last time <laughs> I've been. <laughs> it's okay to skinny shame. Hmm. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be. I'm just saying it's puzzling to me because as society sort of is collectively saying we're going to stop dogging on each other all the time about stuff, not that one. I do think it'll eventually become bad to skinny shame and then movies will still make fun of poor Southern males. It's my prediction. Uh, what do you think about that, Cal? I think, yeah, sure. I mean, folks are going to, folks like ribbon on each other, right? So you're going to rally around the things that are still acceptable. Yep, I was making the comment, we did some uh, hockey playing a couple weeks ago, actually while you guys were in Mexico. And uh, folks were talking about like old hockey movies. Mm-hmm. And I had purchased a bottle of Newman's own salad dressing for the trip. Got it. Paul Newman's in a famous old hockey movie. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And what the hell was that movie? Long time ago. <clears throat> was, uh, what the heck is it? Shit, now I can't remember. It, it, very, fa- uh, crepes. Anyway, we'll, we'll figure it out. But, y- like, Slapshot. Slapshot That's right. I couldn't, I was, I was just Did you look that like, up, Phil, or know that? I, I thought it was Slapshot, just, just double-checking. Yeah, Slapshot. You thought it was Slapshot. What, yeah. what was his search? Can you tell me what his, show, show, show Kelly your search. Hockey? I, I feel like, I'm, I feel I like you're lying. I for Slapshot. <laughs> he did. He did, Slapshot. for real? Yeah. I thought he typed in yeah. Paul Newman hockey movie. <laughs> uh, so he, no joke, wrote Slapshot down. Yes, absolutely. Okay. He did. I'll, yeah. give, I'll give it to you, you Guys Phil. on it. Um, the, anyway, just an example of like, something uh, in one's past that was apparently broadly socially acceptable at the time type of humor uh, that is like, like you cannot, it's hard to make it through that movie at this point. You wince a little bit. Oh, yeah, big time, big time. And then, you know, Newman's Own Foundation, all profits go to uh, philanthropic deals and you're like, this guy on the salad dressing... (laughs) 
Once said this in a movie. Yeah, someday the wrong person's going to watch Slapshot and Paul Newman's whole thing's going to be over, man. Yeah. Yeah. Steve, I got a question for you real fast. I see you keep popping those designer glasses on. I've got a solution for you. What? LASIK eye surgery. No, because it doesn't work for reading. I just got it done. Just for reading? Well, so I... I don't have an eye problem besides reading. I couldn't sit on the couch and read the golf scores on the TV or the football or whatever on the TV. Uh Uh-huh. Now I can sit and read them perfectly. But have like you I, always I couldn't needed, read Royal Coachman over there on that thing. But have you always needed glasses? No. Oh. So the last couple of years, my eyes have gotten worse and worse and worse. Um, at night, especially low light. Oh, yeah. And I went in and got LASIK, and they said one downside is you might not be able to, like, read your phone. So I got it done 8 a.m. the next morning. I was 2015, and I can read my phone and my computer screen. Really? So you might have it checked because... Oh, I got an eye exam coming up. Oh, you do? Yeah. yeah. To find out what... The, but, I mean, this has been happening since I was 45, just like slowly. Right. It just gets worse and worse. So I use these these uh, readers. So How can fast you see was it your a distance? I could actually do it. I just had to make a weird face, tip my head at a weird angle, and get back. <laughs> can you see at a distance? I mean, can you see a buck out there at 200, 200 yards? Extremely and... well. Okay, so your distance is fine. My distance was well, shot. My last eye exam, they told me that my distance stuff is still spot on. Okay. It's just reading fine print is getting gotcha. harder for me. Okay. But I'm, going down. I'm going down. We're going to okay. get down to the bottom of it. I bought these on Amazon. I bought five for 10 bucks. What power? Twos. You Twos. know, I was going to tell you uh, when you brought that up the last time, my, my buddy Kyler, his dad passed away, right? And uh, we used a bunch of communal stuff for horse packing and, and things like that. And every every item that we touched of his had a pair of reading glasses in it. Mm-hmm. The little fold-up ones that, you know, that, that yeah. fold out. Sure. So I just went to that strategy. I was trying to do the thing where you have a pair. Everywhere. That shit doesn't work. So now I have a pair everywhere. Yeah. It's so funny. Saddle bags, uh, old duffel bags, the jockey box in his truck, the glove compartment in his truck. The, I mean, they were just everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the way you got to do it. Uh, here, here's some serious, more serious questions. What was my favorite episode from part two? Indisputably, the show we did with Kimmy, me and Cal and Kimmy Werner. Guys, just <laughs> what's your what problem? do you think of that, Phelps? Oh, that hurts Phelps because Phelps and me did an sh- episode together. Listen, Phelps, that was not a hit against you, man. Phil, can you edit that to say, um, I, edit that to say, uh, Phelps? I'll give you some money later. Listen. You just got to do your next elk hunt while holding your breath. Underwater. Yeah. That was a great episode. That was a great episode. We had a good time. Loved it. But um, I just, like I said, man, I feel like I wasted my life by not being a spear fisherman. It's not my fault because where I was born. (laughs) I wasted my life. And if I could redo it all over again, that's all I would do. I can tell you from a viewer standpoint, I really enjoy the spearfishing stuff and some of the stuff on your social media. Is that right? It's, yeah, it's something that... Even though you're from Arizona. Well, I've, I'm fascinated by it. I've never done it, mm-hmm. but it's kind of gotten me to thinking of, of doing it. Yeah. It's hard. All the other cool stuff, um, especially at this point in life, I think it'd be very different uh, if if you started out of the gate right. being able to hunt on land and hunt in the water. But at this point in life, it is literally being dropped into another world, and it's hard to recreate 
that experience elsewhere, right? So like that's kind of what you're up against. It's super new, so it's fun, right? Exactly. It brings you're, back like the kid in you. That's, the steep part of the learning curve, right. right? Yeah, exactly. You've done it quite a bit too, right? Trying, yeah. trying, yep. Yep. The effort's there. <laughs> we might lose Cal to spearfishing. I mean, like he's going to die. Because he had a trachea squeeze and bled out his nose. And then he's got a problem where he comes up and kind of like gets a little fainty. Well, that is one question I had. Like, can you do it and just kind of surface fish or do you technically, do you you have to dive I spent many years just surface fishing. So you can just enjoy it? You pick your spots. But then I, then I realized, but the the people that are serious about it, they're like, they kind of like mostly regard themselves as free divers. Sure. But we would go to the Bahamas and, and you you know, you're like, the deepest you go is eight feet, right? And did all that, but it's, it's, you're just. Does it become a point where like, you got to get to the depths to get where the bigger fish are yeah. and, okay. Yeah. I think that if, uh, if I could get where I could comfortably fish, if I could get where I could spend a minute at 70 feet. Um, Free diving. At if I could feet. go down and lay on the bottom for a minute at 70 feet, I would be very happy with myself. So how long does Would it- you say like, I would sign that contract right now. Yeah. And that's, that's your max. I'm saying if I if I could right. have a mi- a down t- like a a minute laying on the bottom of 70 feet of water, if someone said like I'll give you that, but you'll never have more. That's as deep as you can go. Yep, you can. We'll sign it right now. You can spend a minute at 70 feet. And you'll never get another thing, but I'll give it to you right now. I would sign that contract. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's like that's that's probably like a little bit more than what you really need in most most places. You can do a hell of a lot of fishing. Yep. Hell of a lot of fishing. When you say that, though, Steve, how how long does it take you? Because I'm thinking about this in terms of just holding your breath. How long does it take you to get down there and back up? It'd be a two-minute downtime. Two-minute down? You'd just be underwater to get there? Two, you'd be underwater two minutes. Oh. Oh, okay. Total. Total. Yeah. Because uh, you might have a max breath hold. Do you know the max static breath hold is what? Type that in, Phil. It's a st- It's like like nine minutes max like that that's not exerting yourself right so if a free diver like if, if you're talking to a, a, a good spirit like take like greg fonts okay um and i might i might mutilate his numbers apologies greg but let's say greg fonts has a downtime his like his known downtime is three minutes meaning he can go down for three minutes not a problem most of his dives are gonna be 90 seconds because when you come to the surface your recovery needs to be twice as long as how long you were down. So you, it takes away how responsive you can be to what you saw while you were down, right? Also, you can run into trouble, meaning like let's say Greg is spearing oil rigs. You go down, everything's going fine. You shoot a fish. The fish shoots through one of the, the support columns and kind of wraps around your leg a little bit. Now, if you've already overstayed, if your downtime is three minutes and you're like, oh, I'm at two minutes, 30 seconds, because it's only going to take me 30 minutes, 30 seconds to get to the top. And then you do something like that. Now what happens to you? So they'll, they'll just do like 90 second dive, 90 second dive, three minute recovery time, 90 second dive, three minute recovery time. And they're just and they develop that cadence. So it's not always about, it's not always about like, what can you maximum get away with? Yeah. You know? And, and so they'll. If, if they're comfortable at three, they're probably up at 90 seconds. And then if something crazy happens, like you're down there and then you see something, you still have 
something you reserve to go make it happen, but they're not down there like pushing limits all the time. The uh, world record was set in 2016 by a Spanish freediver at 24 minutes and three seconds. Static breath hold? Yep. No way. Mm hmm. No way. Was he breathing out his nose? There's a, there's a, whole, article <laughs> on, a whole article on how like, scientifically it's done, but I haven't read it. You have got to be kidding me. I think it's like cold water, certain depth. There's some things to it. Um, <clears throat> Man, that bitch gets some fish. No, that <laughs> doesn't do anything, right? That's like there's no exertion because any bit of exertion sucks up oxygen, right? So. Even Kimmy Werner was saying that on this spearfishing episode we did where me and Cal are kind of expose our, um, expose our beginnerness and, you know, Kimmy's a pro. Like literally has been a professional spearfisher woman, and we captured like the what we captured on film that like shows off Kimmy's capabilities is is like the the tip of the spear for yeah, her. Yeah. Like it's it's incredible. She wasn't she feeling too do. good. No, she wasn't feeling very good. Uh, uh, when talking about exertion, um, cocking a three prong. That like they're so in tune, like the good free divers are so in tune with their own physiology that she'll notice the impact on her downtime of having a three prong cocked because you're putting grip on something and that burns oxygen. Like when Greg gets up, like they don't drink, they're like monastic in their on dive days when I've gone with them, they're 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 like monks. You know, like they're watching, they don't want to drink the night before if you're really trying to perform peak like you don't want to drink the night before there's a guy that cuts out dairy days before for any kind of clarity like um like mucus build up in your head no coffee super careful about any medications you take very careful about food you eat avoid acids it's a deep dark hole which is (laughs) and but it's about like knowing yourself and your capabilities which i want to swing back to um the issues that that I've been having and, you know, I worked on like a lot of breath hold charts and did a lot of training um, and and really did make giant leaps and improvements in in my abilities. And and the reality is, is like, I think I'm always going to be susceptible to the mistakes I'd been making, Uh, but it's a, a training and repetition thing. And, and certainly a mental thing of knowing like the safe way to push your boundaries and improve and, and sticking to that, you know? So it's, it's awesome. Like, I, I just absolutely love it. So. Wasted my life. Wasted my life. And you're getting old. Yeah. It's over now. I still <laughs> had fun with Phelps. Here's a question, Phelps, from a listener. What uh, what were your backpack setups on the elk episode? I had a XO Mountain Gear 4800, which I like a whole bunch. And then what'd you have for? And then explain your arrow setup because I mimicked Phelps's arrow setup. So I was running a Kafaru 44 mag on that, so 4400 cubic inch um, pack on that one. And then so our, similar, we had similar size. Yeah, backpack. similar size. We knew we were only going to be you know three to five days, so it was a perfect size without a bunch of extra room. Um, we still had the ability as soon as we killed to take, you know, uh, a quarter out on that first load. So really good setups in that, that, you know, 4,000 to 5,000 range. But as far as the arrow setups, um, we didn't go completely Ashby. We just went with a, you know, a semi micro diameter arrow from Black Eagle. 
Um, we put a lot of weight on the in the insert, so I think we were both shooting 150 to 200 grains on the insert, and then we were both shooting 100 grain uh, iron wool broadheads. Um, so kind of not in my my specific setup. I don't know where you ended up. I have a longer arrow and a little bit heavier arrow. I was at like 560 grains um, total arrow. Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, you're. I think you're probably in the the low fives. I just wanted to switch everything up, so I asked Phelps what I should use, and that's what Phelps told me I should use. So I got exactly the arrows and exactly the broadheads yep. that he said, and had that like pretty close range frontal shot. That bull took two steps, and it looked like a garden hose coming out of his brisket. Yeah, and uh, fell over dead. Yeah, like somebody I watched it fall over dead. Yeah, I mean, you, it, it, if you were to fill you know a gallon jug up with some you know water with some red food coloring, and you just drilled that and just watched it explode basically i mean it was, it was like just a yeah yeah it was and, most, I, most and impressive. I heard i heard phelps's bull go down and i was i was 20 yards away from him and i heard it hit the deck yeah yeah very very short blood trails on those with the very controversial frontal shot um there's a question feral goat hunting in hawaii is there a process for feral goat hunting in hawaii there is and there isn't we were hunting on a private ranch big ranch north of waikoloa that charge like there's like a trespass fee there's a trespass fee and then i I think for different species there's trophy fees as well so it's like if you kill something really big um that they're trying to keep around there's there's something but i i think there's a lot of folks that you could call over there and then then the locals hunt just the locals just hunt up in the mountains for goats and sheep like just local meat hunters go up and hunt in the mountains but they're not going to tell you. They're not going to be like, oh, yeah, go here. No way. Right. No way. If you're going through all the hassle, like, to get over to Hawaii and all that, um, and you want to go do it, I mean, that's what we did. Yeah, I I, I think it's a, a, a great first step, at least, and for all the activities that, that there are over there, uh, it would be a very efficient use of your time, too, so... Um, someone asked like how Kimmy what how deep was Kimmy going under the water? Like so we're talking about that 70-foot thing. Kimmy can very comfortably fish at 70 feet. She can fish over hundred feet deep. I don't know what her deepest dive is, but I mean she can fish at hundred and over hundred feet of water. Yeah. Um yeah, she she did tell us that. I mean, it is it's she may have done like 130 for a minute and 30. It's some something very similar to that. I you know, after we were done filming, we went uh, fishing uh, for a few days, and I didn't, you know, witness. I, I swam with Kimmy on her birthday, and that was like the day that she must have been feeling uh, very good, and just decided to not uh, deal with me. <laughs> I was there just trying to keep up and watch the scene, and the depth didn't stick out to me, but just the comfort of being underwater, underneath big boulders, underneath caves for long periods of time with, with, you know, your, your running line from that attaches your spear to your gun, you know, going all over the place through fish, they're wrapping up on things. And from the top side, looking down, like my heart was going, Cause I was like, Oh God, that does not, she's been down there a long time. It seems like a dangerous situation or a potentially dangerous situation. And, but you're, you're watching 
a person who is completely confident and completely relaxed. Like there is no difference than her, uh, you know, untangling her fly line on the bank versus untangling this line underneath. It's like, as Steve would say, it'd be very like, do, 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 mm-hmm. <laughs> type of thing. I went back with my wife and kids between Christmas and New Year's to spearfish with Kimmy again. And, ugh. I'm so freaking jealous, man. Wasting yeah. my life. Did I tell you that, Phelps? Yeah, <laughs> multiple times. What was the tastiest fish you ate in Hawaii? Oh, were the camera operators using scuba or free diving? Free diving. Kimmy's husband is a phenomenal... Justin, a phenomenal underwater photographer. He shot, Kimmy's husband, Justin, shot a lot of the underwater stuff you're looking at, but Dirt shot a lot of it. Dirt's comfortable in the water. Yeah, Rick Smith is a... Yep, Rick shot some. Yeah. Um, But some of the highly, like, some of the real doozies were... uh, Justin. Justin on the deep stuff. So we were, we actually, like, uh, yeah. And and we'll probably, we'll probably use him again. I'm hoping to use him again. Oh, definitely. I mean... uh, we talked about on on the podcast that we did in Hawaii, but watching Kimmy do her thing, incredibly impressive. And then Justin is there, you know, basically driving uh, like an old portable television underwater would be like a similar, like, you know, like a 15-inch old portable television for those of you old enough to remember something like that. That's like what he is pushing ahead of him in the water doing you know very very similar still kicking your ass yeah and it's it's unreal hey guys turkey season is in full swing right now and if you are planning on getting after it make sure to pick up some meat eater phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now i carry a few different things i like to use mouth calls and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them, Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today so we did an episode about ibex have you ever done the ibex hunt jay i haven't in new mexico i drew a uh like a the way the tags work is they have a once in a lifetime tag where you can hunt any ibex and then get a big male and they got what i don't know 48 50 inch horns they're insane i had a tag that's good for a female or an immature billy so the horns gotta be like sub 14 and we did an episode about this. It's a great spot. And they, they, they hang out in the Florida mountains. And someone asked, why don't they just strike off? And why, like, why do they stay in the Floridas? Um, it's surrounded by, I'll start by saying they don't. It's desert flats. But it's surrounded by desert flats. So these, this is a mountain-dwelling 
cliff-dwelling critter. When I say cliff-dwelling, I mean they dwell on cliffs, vertical cliff faces. They are quite at home hanging out on vertical cliff faces. So that's their like that's their refuge, vertical cliff faces. Um, and this thing sits out there. It's like an island mountain chain. It's like if you imagine a, a flat sea with a rocky island on it, that's kind of like the flat sea being the surrounding desert, and then you have this rock pile. People even call the mountain range like the rock. So it's full of rattlesnakes too. I it heard. is a lot of rattlesnakes. Yep. When they get, you know, they're, they just hang out on the cliff faces to avoid predators. So he's got to like give up that, that desire to leave and they do leave, but the way they run it is the state is comfortable with them being in the Floridas where they were introduced. The state's not comfortable with them being out of the Floridas. You can at any time. A New Mexican resident can at any time buy an Ibex tag and shoot any Ibex they see that's not in the Florida mountains. And they do strike off. And um, uh, our friend on there, Jeremy Romero, with uh, Wildlife Federation, he... Uh, Fantastic human being. Yeah, probably one of the best... Phelps is going to get offended by this. No, no, no. <laughs> probably the best person on the planet. <laughs> Jeremy Romero. I'll just come out and say it. Best person on the planet. Jeremy Romero, followed closely by my children. Um, uh, he's got friends, and he's they know people that have now and then like been out doing something in one of the surrounding mountain chains, and be like, oh my God, an Ibex. And you run down and get a tag, and it's all yours. And that's how they keep them from spreading out, which is very similar to how they're running, to how New Mexico is running the um, Oryx situation, where... Um, oryx were introduced down to the White Sands Missile Range. They have a robust population there. It's very hard to draw the tag. And then around White Sands, they're running, uh, I think it's 11 seasons a year. Each season is a month long. I drew that too. So you pick your month when you apply. And like each season's a month long. So outside of the White Sands Missile Range, they're being hunted Upper 200, I don't know what the hell it is. I can't do the math very good. 300 days. Is it one month or two months they don't hunt them down there? It used to be 12 months a year. I think it's 10 months a year. They're hunting them 300 days a year off base. And it's like when you get a tag, it's on range, off range. And they're just gradually getting them whittled away where they're confined only to that missile range and anything basically it's not a free-for-all but basically anything that disperses across that fence line is is basically up for grabs um and you'll see that most people that kill one when you draw the off range most of the orcs to get killed are killed within five miles of defense anyways people aren't now and then they do it's not like people are finding them 100 miles away you know they're kind of getting them they're getting the ones that flirt with the border uh this is one for jay this is a quite this is this is I'm gonna have you field this one. Okay. Because of where you live. When you head into rattlesnake territory, do you wear anything different or carry anything for extra prote- protection? No. Being an Arizona. Genuine Arizona. No. No. A lot of guys wear snake shaps. I don't want to say don't do it, but I don't. Um had a lot of close encounters, but you just gotta be really aware of constantly watching the ground, constantly watching where I'm putting my hands, my feet, anything. 
You just stay calm. You stay yeah. vigilant. Yeah. Can you can you answer for me uh, while we're on the subject? Why in Sonora hunting coos deer? Why do you just not see rattlesnakes? So we've seen a few um, in 26 years. So I don't want to say you don't. Uh, but there becomes a point in time when it's cold enough at night that most of them den up. Okay. Cause it's below uh, freezing every night. Yeah. Interesting. We have a ranch in Chihuahua that, uh, we've hunted three years in a row now and we found a snake den and it's right up against this cliff face and where you kind of have to walk to get up on top to glass, you got it the way the angle of the hill is, you actually have to get really close, like from here to the wall mm-hmm. of this den. And the first year the guys found it, you know, they came back that night and they were like, yeah, we were, you know, walking along this cliff face and we heard one rattle. And then we started looking in and it was just full of snakes. And then one of my guides, Nate, actually got down on all fours and was looking in the hole. And one of the other guides said, Nate, don't move. And in the grass, he was kind of down on all fours looking in. I mean, it's pretty cool. I saw it this year there was a snake coiled right next to his left hand and probably 15 inches from his face. Really? But it was cold, so he just kind of backed away. Um, But they will get on those south-facing slopes in their dens, and sometimes when it warms up, they will just kind of ease out a little bit to to get the warmth. Soak it up a little bit. Um, But the reason you don't see them is primarily they're denned up. Yeah. When we were hunting in New Mexico. Was he scared? No, I... I, in no, Mexico. no, it didn't bother me, but on the New Mexico, Sam, our producer about got it. Yeah. yeah. What was funny is there was, for whatever reason, like a, a great abundance of grasshoppers. You know, when they jump. Oh yeah. So, Clicking. but you got hundreds of them. Oh yeah. So it's a constant noise of, of grasshoppers. And we're walking along and all of a sudden there's like a, like a different cadence. And I don't even think Sam put it together. No. But I like heard like a, that ain't grasshoppers. And she'd walked, yeah, yeah very, very quick. close. Yeah, it, was... it doesn't matter what time of year it is for me when you, you know, you step on like dead grass or something and you hear that noise. You know, when you get scared enough, like uh, initially, you literally feel like your heart, you're like, I just lost 20 minutes off my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I still hear grasshoppers click or, or leaves or branches that just have that sound of a I've been in around enough snakes that it's, it's, you know, I'm convinced I've probably taken a month off my life when you add up all the times that it wasn't a snake, you but used I thought up a whole it lot of heartbeats. Yeah. 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 You've never been hit. No. Never been struck. No. Um, oh, here's a question that came in. Thermal imaging. We discussed thermal imaging on a recent podcast. Uh, like Utah banned thermal imaging, thermal night vision, uh, which is really like, taking over the coyote it's like firmly ingrained into hog hunting it's really impacting coyote hunting um utah banned it because i know that people are using it to scout right you follow a herd all night long uh and he's asking like what about game recovery in my view uh i don't understand the i don't really understand the reasoning behind let, let take away the enforcement aspect okay like meaning this Let's say a state like Utah says, okay, no thermal imaging. Um, and they just say you just can't use thermal night vision equipment. It's probably because it's then it winds up being that you have no reason to have it with you. And someone, if you were allowed to use it for game recovery, then you'd be like, oh, no, I just have it for game recovery. And it just makes enforcement hard. So if you never mind that complexity, 
I don't see the reason. I don't see any reason to do anything that that make any rules that make game recovery harder. I, I I think the laws that mean you that say you can't use a leashed dog for game recovery is stupid. It's already hit. Like let the person find it. I think the and this is always the issue, right? Is like the where the intent gets misused. So um, in theory, is this going to uh, make that small fraction of the hunting population take a poorer shot, try to force an opportunity that isn't really there because they know they are, their confidence lies in their game recovery technology. Oh, like my dog will find it. My dog will find you it. You just got to get a piece of it. Yep. Get, you know, get something. it bleeding. Yep. Uh, and so I was but do you, think that, do you think that, do you I, think that that would happen? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but there, you know, what is the Venn diagram mm. of the overlap of the folks who don't even buy a license or a tag and are out there hunting with the folks who are like, just, just hack away at it. We got thermal imaging in the truck. We'll find it. Right. Yeah, but, but here's the thing too. A dog, if you got a, if you're using a blood tracking dog and it's on a leash, yep. Um, or you're using thermal imaging, the thing still has to be dead. Well, okay. With the with leash dog, well, no, you're right because it could be holed up under a tree. Yeah, and you could jump it back up again. Yeah, and then that. that yeah, I get it. I know. I mean, opens up I a get, can of worms. Yeah, it I is. understand it. If there was like a magical box that. You know, it was like, break glass in case of, right? I'd be like, yeah, have your thermal imaging in there, your blood trailing dog, your, you know, whatever. Drone in the sky, whatever, like, because I don't like the idea of wasted meat or or yeah. an animal that's going to suffer needlessly or whatever, right? So it's it's a tough one. Wasn't that the argument against Illuminox? You know, it was like, yeah. you know, you were going to hunt too late in the night. And I think you just kind of... And other people were like, well, no, it just helps with recovery. Right. So it's just kind of like a slippery slope that... I agree, man. I think if you're just using it for recovery, like... Let's say people were totally honest. Right. And not dumb. Right. Then I would say... (laughs) The other side is too, man, with like thermal imaging, the investment level you have to go to to then go break the law. You know, like you just got to imagine... It's not like throwing you know, a spotlight in your backpack and you're like, oh, I'm just going to go night hunt now. Mm-hmm. It's like that, that level of investment that's required around thermal imaging. I just don't see those folks wanting to go out there and then like try to find something in the yeah. dark and shoot it. I think too, there's a thing where, uh, people that don't understand a technology are always sort of, uh, it'd be like this. Let's say someone's sitting in Colorado and they're going to sign a thing that says you can't hunt lions with dogs. And their mind, like, what's a challenge? You know, mm-hmm. they just don't understand that the the challenge is incredible, right? It's it's like if you want to talk about what's the challenge, it's a lot harder than shooting a deer out of a cornfield. Yep. If we're if everything's like, what's the challenge? Like that's extraordinary. It's extremely challenging. You have to know a lot to pull that off. But I think that people look at technologies that they don't understand. They're also like they just imagine it being like this. Um, they imagine being like it just simplifies everything. But we had the experience where we got from we we got some renter loaner night vision equipment from this place called Ultimate Night Vision to mess around with it. And dude, it's not like you just walk out and all of a sudden you're like, oh aha, right? You know, we were blowing a predator call at night with that stuff. There's a learning curve, and just, it, it's it, it's not that all of a sudden like the world becomes easy. 
Right. You kind of yeah. like, we're sitting there, I don't know, is it an orangutan? Right. <laughs> you just see little dots. Oh, no, it's a little baby mouse five feet from me. It's yeah. either like a, it's either a deer way out or it's a little baby mouse yeah. nibbling on my toe. I can't tell. Yeah. Because I'm divorced from all spatial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't have any spatial. Uh, this uh, this guy came and visited me, uh, Javier, for with Wounded Warrior Outdoors, and we went out with that thermal going after coyotes. And, and he's like, oh, Gary, he's like, we got a coyote coming in. It's coming into the call, and he's getting all amped. And I'm like, I just do not, because I was looking through thermal. I'm like, I do not see this coyote. And I'm like, you sure? And he's like, yeah, I can see it zigzagging to us. I'm like, God dang. And I, so I just. You're like, all I can see is that baboon. Well, so I like, <laughs> I pull my eye out of the scope, right? Cause we're like right next to each other. And I look and his AR is pointed like, I'm not kidding you, like 15 feet in front of him. <laughs> and he's looking down and I look and it, it was a mouse. Yeah. And he's watching this mouse run back and <laughs> forth, right? But like that spatial awareness, cause he couldn't see the terrain, you know, and the stubble field looked like hills. To him, that was a coyote running in, and it was a mouse at like yeah. 15 feet. It's, it's, you know, I mean, not even to say like what anyone ought to do about them, I'm just saying you sort of get in your head that that there's certain things that do, that have certain magical capabilities, yeah. and then you mess with it, and you're like, I'm guessing you could get there. Like, if you're in the military and you train for years and years and years using this stuff, you probably get really, then you're probably like, it does become magical. But just to open up a box and throw those things on, right. or look through a scope, you're like more confused than you would be wandering around the dark yeah you know, I, at first i do want to say like in uh to garrett's uh point about the investment like how many people that uh would weed out uh from wrongdoing i was interviewing a game warden years ago and he had told me he's like you know i don't care that much about the fines he's like i don't go for big fines like what I go for is stuff. He's mm. like, I seize the toys. That's where you hurt. He's like, people. that's how you hurt these guys. He's like, custom rifles. He's like, these folks have a laundry list of fines and things that they're already not paying. Child support <laughs> that they're already not paying. Uh, he's like, but you want to see somebody have a come to Jesus moment? He's like, you seize that custom rifle that they're so proud of. There is five thousand dollar thermal scope. Right. Um, and Paul, do you have, uh, you got any insight into that at all? Well, maybe? Yeah. No, yeah, definitely. We, we saw that where it was, uh, like you said, that typically the folks who are out doing that are exactly that. They're already not paying the fines. They're already not doing any of that stuff. And yeah, it's the, the physical possessions that they're worried about losing. Um, you know, I'd used thermals and, and, and night vision, both in law enforcement and the, I have to agree a hundred percent. It's. That's why the like the Navy SEALs have the four tube goggles versus a you know monocular that you're going to see you know on the civilian market you know for because, depth perception yeah depth perception and it's it's tough you have a hard time you know it takes a lot of practice shooting with that stuff and um, yeah it's just a whole different world but I, I agree as well that the like like you said before that the um, there are a small number of people out there who if they have it with them. If they had that break glass in case of emergency situation, that would be great. But there's often a lot of people out there that are going to be, well, I brought it for this, but it's going to help me find it. So I'm just going to use it now and then tell them I didn't. You know, Yeah, tell them I brought it with me for the other stuff. Yeah, yeah um, for sure. I'll tell you one application for me for thermal imaging, which I've never used. But all my buddies were thinking, oh, you could find a big bull or a big buck or whatever. I thought about turkeys roosted in a tree. 
Oh. Being a turkey hunter, how many times do you roost birds at night, but you don't know exactly where they're at? You go in in the morning and you're like, do I shock them and wake them up? And then I got to move a little closer and then they might hear me, see me, whatever. And it, the application I thought of would be like, I know they're pretty close. Oh, there they are. Okay. I need to move up a little bit closer. You don't have to make any noise. Then you can just let them wake up and do their thing. Well, not only that, man, go at one in the morning. Because even if you well, kind of, didn't have them roosted. I'm saying like, you know, no, find them at one in the morning and make a waypoint. Because even if you made them a little nervous at, at four in the morning, five in the morning, right. they'll be like all settled back down. It'll be like whatever happened, happened. But when the thermal yeah. imaging thing over the last couple of years has gotten big That's and everyone's talking goes. about big bucks, I'm thinking about turkeys. I'm like, what an awesome opportunity to just be able to know exactly where they're at. Because I'm always in the morning going, God, I don't really want to shock them because then I wake them up. Okay, let me ask you this now. Yeah. Would you do it? I don't know. (laughs) Right? Because here's here's the question, and this is like the basis of this, right? Is the gobbler you got that way as good as... On a purity schedule. The the same gobbler that you made the wrong call to shock, you had to move, they got nervous, they went the other way, and you had to come back the next morning, screwed up again, but the third morning you got them. I think, I think I've screwed up so much that I might, if it was legal, I don't know if it actually is, but I think I might do it to just be able to be in position, know that I'm set up, um, to have an interaction. Uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, there you go. But I thought of turkeys. Everyone else is thinking of big bucks. I'm thinking uh-huh. of turkeys. Yeah. It's a, it's a real, um, there's a Pandora's box, man. Oh yeah. Hiding in that thermal scope box. Yeah. <laughs> uh, would you, here's a guy wrote in, it's a good one. I don't really get this. Did you read this, Cal? A guy's saying that, um, what state is this in? Central Virginia. There's a guy raising non, okay. He has a local, oh my God. It's so confusing to me. There's a new animal product being uh, offered by a farm in my area. He goes on to say, in a partnership with another farm, that is committed to sustainable ag practices. One of my local producers is offering local, non-GMO. That's like, okay, but no, I guess that does yeah, there's no such thing as a GMO rainbow trout available to anyone, but they could be fed non-GMO corn, I suppose. So he's offering local, non-GMO, no antibiotic rainbow trout raised in low-capacity pens in a river. They're feeding them on wild venison. How is that true? The trout feed is described as not the normal GMO grains and antibiotics in a dirty, tight capacity system. This is still quoting. They have a 100% survival rate, which goes to show what a great setup it is for the fish. This is some of the only some of the only ethically raised fish in the country. That's okay. Feeding the venison is a double win as it thins the overpopulation of deer and gives the rainbow trout an excellent non-GMO food. First off, wild deer are not non-GMO, especially in Virginia, because they're eating in GMO fields probably every night. But what are they talking about? Well, it, it could be that these are roadkill would be my 
that would be the easy answer. So then it's the cars are thinning the population. It's the cars that are thinning the population. <laughs> or uh, you got to keep in mind like the big, uh, sorry, I want to use the word battle, because but it happens on a lot of uh, the national monuments over there that are battlefields where you have these crazy spikes in whitetail populations. Oh, and they're getting them from sharpshooters who are like could doing be contract get, work. Could be some of that. Um, so that would be like the sourcing part. But the question of like, would you eat that eats this that's surprising is like, yeah, of course, because you have no idea what a wild turkey has consumed <laughs> on no, its to, path. Yeah, to, to you. say a whitetail deer in Virginia is non GMO is just not true. It's just not, not true. Yeah. Um, the, and you know, like what, what a beef or a pig or a chicken eats before it gets to your plate, like, I think you'd get surprised on what yeah, any at least, at least that's a closed system. I mean, you can, you right. Can, you can tell what, you know, you can but control there's a, what it is. There's eats. a question in there of like, would you eat rainbow trout that eat deer? It's that was like his main question. A wild, uh, rainbow, uh, anywhere in the country, a wild brown trout, a cutthroat, they're all eating their normal things. And then they're trying out some odd things. Um, and you have no clue what you're going to find in that stomach, really. Yeah. Like, for instance, like they the burbot that I caught last year and was, I always do a little stomach contents check. And, you know, it's like, I have a pretty good idea what they eat, but this guy's gut had several rounds of what, without testing, is a wild guess. But I would describe as cheddar brat elk sausage. <laughs> <laughs> It had a distinct look of wild game, and I, I think you could attract it back to a local processor. So. I mean, I'd I'd much rather eat a fish that ate deer than like worms. Like the deer seems like a lot better option. Well, that's a great. Yeah, point. no, in and of itself, if someone told me that there's a great fish and it eats deer, I wouldn't care. I, I just like, I guess I'm not able to really focus in on his question. I'm more the details like leave me with a lot of questions. He even goes in to say. I'll keep the names of the farm operations out of this email. Here's a good one. We're getting around it. We're gonna get we're getting into coos here in a minute here, but here's another one. They got a new uh everybody knows like the the COVID vaccine was an mRNA vaccine. Um man, these guys at Yale got one worked out for Lyme disease. Yeah, be which very is fascinating because it doesn't uh let me let me put it to this way. So the mRNA vaccine targets the antigens found in tick saliva and alerts individuals to tick bites by triggering an immune response at the site of the bite. The vaccine also prevents the tick from feeding correctly, so it will quickly fall off the host, thereby reducing its ability to transmit pathogens and providing partial protection against the tick-causing bacteria. Hmm. Which is, is I, I mean, I'd, I'd sign up for that. I mean, I'm thinking right now about turkeys and was talking to a friend of mine in Tennessee about going to get turkeys. And, I mean, you you just get covered in ticks. And they're the tiny one, you know. Ugh. I wonder if this one will become highly politicized. <laughs> well, no one's going to come and tell you you have to get it. So it might not become politicized. If it's just like a thing, if, if you want it, go get it, it probably won't be political. Yeah. If someone says, by God, by Monday. It's a creepy deal, man. I, I, man, I, yeah, the tick experience I had with, um, 
Lyme's disease and, um, you know, the journey that you went through as well, Mm -hmm. Steve, like that's scary stuff, man. I don't, for our next close calls, um, for our next close calls series, I'm going to tell the tick story. That's a good one. I'm going to have Jimmy sit in on it too. Me and my boy are going to tell our Lyme disease story. Oh, the heartbreaking. Yeah. We haven't done it yet, but I'm looking forward to telling it. Yeah. Close call. Uh, speak here's here's one for you jay speaking of being blind going blind <laughs> no seriously so we cover a lot of uh in the close call series we talk about this too we cover a lot of situations where um hunters mistakenly identify a hunter for game okay shoot people on a- shooting other hunters on accident an eye doctor writes in he's got a very interesting point that i hadn't considered in all these discussions we've had um He says, as an optometrist, I'm curious as to what type of vision the hunters have that mistakenly shot another hunter thinking they were some big game animal. I'm stereotyping here. This is him, the the eye doctor talking. I'm stereotyping here, but slightly far-sighted middle-aged males, 40 to 55 years of age, which middle-aged males that age, that's a lot of hunters, right? Most of them probably. That have never worn glasses before eventually lose their distance clarity in the same age as mentioned before. And most of the time, they say they see just fine. But he goes on to say, not according to my visual acuity charts. I wonder if they see a blurry mammalian blob because they see, quote, just fine and and decide to shoot. Sometimes putting a new pair of distance prescription glasses on a dude that thinks they can see is like putting distance prescription on a kid who truly has never seen clearly before. They're like, wow. So he goes on to say, if you're a hunter, uh, maybe there is cause for you to now and then get your eye exam. It could be someone who's spent their whole life thinking they see everything just great. And it's the, the decline is so gradual that pretty soon they see a movement and they feel like, well, how would I make that mistake? But they're just not seeing the way they were seeing. I am that guy. Five years ago, 10 years ago. And you're not meaning to do anything wrong, but you think you have capabilities you don't. This year in, in the fall at the Ot Six Ranch, Hunter, we were actually driving to a spot and a elk some elk ran out and he goes check out that bull and i could tell it was a bull just because his body and i could tell it was a bull he's like he's got a little kicker Mm. without popping up my binos i mean he's 26 years old and can see it like that at 250 300 yards and i used to be able to i just saw an elk could tell it was a bull but i had to pop my binos up to even see what he was talking about to me that was kind of the straw of like hey i need to go get surgery yeah. And now it's amazing how driving, you know, I mean, I'm even thinking like this summer, like rowing my raft and stuff, how blurry I was actually seeing, not being able to see, you know, like you're starting to realize what I was missing. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And it was just kind of a blurry blob. You can still see it, but you can't define it. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Sure. I'm curious though, with these accidents, if it's a... Like, do you imagine that this guy was like looking at it and was like, oh, I can't really tell what it is when I'm going to shoot. And it's like this calm or like, is it a sight issue or a judgment excitement issue? But let's play, let's play the optometrist 
let's play. He's not saying he doesn't know for sure. He's just saying it's okay. a thing to wonder about. But let, let's like take that as a thing. It would be that you've hunted your whole life and you've learned to like really trust your vision, but you don't realize that it's gone down. Mm-hmm. And you're operating on a cockiness that came from that you developed over years of seeing very well. I think it's a reasonable thing to bring up. But, but I think it goes back to, I mean, everyone needs to pull up their binos and do a check and say, what am I shooting yeah. at? And, and what's behind oh, it? Listen, See, man, and I, I am not in the... any way excusing shooting people. <laughs> I I feel this guy's Just to got, be clear. I feel this guy's got like a couple open slots in his like his schedule and he's trying to fill them. Let's <laughs> Let's, <laughs> I can't fathom, even if my eyesight it was going bad, how you would ever get to the point of, let's just say, regard. let's take people out of it, a, a black bear versus a, an elk, both walk on four feet. Like, how do you ever get to the point where you mistakenly, to me, that means you're replacing an entire animal color characteristics. You've made the decision to pull the trigger on what you think's behind the shoulder, like, I'm not buying it. We had a no, big, what do you mean? Well, there's nothing not a, to buy. But, no, I'm just saying that I don't think that would ever be even maybe, uh, uh, you know, uh, the tenth factor. You don't factor. think in all the cases where a hunter has shot another hunter, you don't think that poor vision I don't, might have something to do with some of it? I think it could start it, but at the end of it, there's got to be a judgment factor. I mean, you, yeah. At the end of everything, there's a judgment. I mean, similar I'm not, to Jay's. I'm not excusing yeah, it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just, saying, similar to Jay's example, where he, right off the bat, he was off, but then there's the progression. There's that decision tree where you're going to get a better look. You're going to figure out if that's the animal you want to shoot. Where are you going to shoot it? Like, there's like seven more stops. Like, the initial eyesight might have got you going down the wrong track, but. This, yeah, no, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah I would yeah, say yeah. Every you might have you 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 been like, oh, oh, here's something. Yeah. But then. There's like six things that need to happen and you yeah. somehow skipped them all. Yeah. That's when, when someone shoots a person hunting, I'm always like, homie, so you thought you were aiming behind its front shoulder? Yeah. Or wherever, like you'd picked your spot? I would argue <laughs> though that almost every single accident involved someone shooting without pulling up their binos to check what they're shooting at. Are you with me on that? Yeah. No, I, you know what? So if they that, would just that would be take the time and pull I, I up agree. their binos, I think it would eliminate... Every, almost every, um, what would it be? False. Shooting. That'd be an interesting thing to look at is if, if you could have a, if you could have sat down and done like exhaustive interviews with everyone who's done a mistaken identity shooting, would you ever find someone who would say like, oh no, no, I even put my spot and scope on it. No way. No. Yeah. No. Right. I mean, and I think a lot of these cases come out of areas where there's not a lot of bino use right. period. Right. right. They don't even have binos. Thick right. brush. Yeah, a lot of thick brush and quick It's kind decisions. of a sight shot. You know, you yeah. hear something yeah. and you're so amped to get something. You well, just... the turkey accidents, right? Yeah. It's like, that's or a perfect example. Like the highly um, you know, advertised incident in Colorado this year, you know, open sight muzzleloaders. So they're just, you know, optics are probably never being brought into yeah. the situation. Did you hear the episode we did with the turkey guy that got shot turkey hunting twice no. in the same place? What? Yeah. And it had two... Um, Wait, he got shot? Preston Pittman. Yep. He's been shot twice turkey hunting. He's a great guy, In the same the place, or like in the same spot, hunting spot, and and had two very different attitudes from the shooters. One shooter was uh, so distraught and apologetic that he quit hunting, and Preston Pittman had to gradually get him back into hunting. And the other guy was mad at Preston. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Preston sounds exactly like a turkey, so he probably called him right in. Oh, that was, he was blaming. The guy that shot him was blaming him. That he was so well, good. Well, you shouldn't, uh, you know, you're kind of like, well, hold on a minute. So, so it's my fault that you just shot me with a shotgun? That is one thing that I always tell people. Like, if you're calling, no matter what animal it is, and you start hearing other hunters come your way, a lot of guys think it's fun to call in other hunters. You yeah. know, like, oh, I called, I called Jay Scott in. You know, or I called Phelps in. Like they would, it would be like, oh, look what I did. I always say, listen, if you start hearing other hunters call back to you, like I would not be the first one to just jump up, say, hey, hunter, like it's not worth calling him in nice and close and getting shot. (laughs) Yeah. Like don't mess with it. Yeah. You don't wait till he's trying to pluck you. Right. Oh, yeah. One uh, number nine shot. TSS to yeah, the eyeball no things. changes things a lot. Uh, Abernathy, I can't remember what shot size he was saying he shouldn't be able to use. It's so funny because Robert Abernathy's like, uh, maybe someone had fives. I don't know what the hell he had. He's like, man, I don't think you should be able to use those. That hurts. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> he'd been shot. He'd been shot by someone using that. And he doesn't think it's a good turkey load. <laughs> He put, I think I told this, did I tell the story about him? He put his, he was sitting there listening to a bird calling, listening to a gobbler, just trying to think about where it was and how he's going to get over there. And he puts his foot up on a stump. Blam! Guy shoots him in the leg. In conversation with the shooter, the shooter explained, when you put your foot on that stump, it looked just like a Tom going into full strut. Unreal. Eye exam. Eye exam. And you can get all sorts (laughs) of uh, Abernathy fix on season 10 of Meat Eater. That was great. One in a million. I don't want to say he's the best guy on the planet because Jeremy Romero, but he's close. Wonderful Uh, man. Wonderful man. Love the guy. An American treasure. If you haven't seen season 10... It's live on Netflix right now. Check it out. We put a bunch of work into it. Uh, Cal's in two episodes. I. What percent is two out of five, Phelps? 40. Cal's in 40% of the episodes. Which little, is, that's a lot. Makes bald, it sound like a lot. bald, white little head. Yeah, look like a shelled <laughs> turtle out there. <laughs> uh, so you can see that. Uh, a bunch of other awesome stuff. And can we say that we're in the midst of working hard? On new ones. New episodes. New episodes. Which would be not season 10, part three, but season Season 11. 11. TBD. TBD. Here's how we're going to start talking about coos deer. Um, You're hip to the fact that, that, that the esteemed biologist James Heffelfinger has once and for all put to rest... Not what the deer is called, but like how that man pronounced his name. I've heard rumor. Yeah. Um, did you know that our, our mutual acquaintance, Chris Denham, I think has now said he's going to switch to cows. Yeah. I would, I'll, tell, I'll never do it. I would tell you that I don't know anyone that uses cows deer other than Jim Heffelfinger. Well, now Chris Denham, supposedly. Well, I know Chris. Did you see his little stickers? I was going to give you one. I did. You actually sent me one. Oh, I did? Okay. I, I or one to, of your team. Did. Yeah, Kylie sent yeah, it to you. Yeah, it's awesome. 
Uh, yeah, butcher the deer and not the name. Yeah, cows. Yeah, but you're gonna keep calling them coos deer. Oh yeah, for sure. Me too. Do you think that there's um? Do you feel that you're the most uh? You gotta be. You have to be the most experienced coos deer hunter on the hunter on the planet. I don't think so. Who would be more? I don't know. Who would be more? I mean, there's lots of guys that have more days in the field than I do, probably. You think so? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot, but I don't... I I bet you there's no one that's seen more than you. I mean, I've definitely seen a lot, for sure. Well, think about it seriously for a second. 26 years. Don't be be modest, but think about it seriously for a second. Who can you think of that might have seen more than you through a pair of binoculars? Well, I think one of the benefits that I do have is I go to Mexico and have for 26 years. And so your opportunity of getting to see a lot of bucks is big. I had one of my guides actually ask me, he's like, how many bucks do you think you've seen in your life? And I was like, never even thought of it. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, you've been going to Mexico for 26 years. How many do you see in a year? And I was like, probably a hundred at least. He's like, that's 2,600 bucks. I'd never thought of it. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, it's hard to believe I'll be 49 this month. You know, th- that aspect alone, it's hard to believe I've been doing it for 26 years. You know, it feels like if, you know, I'm as fired up today about coos deer as I was the first day I went out. Yeah. There's nothing, there's nothing in me that has waned, um, with coos deer. I'm as excited to go. I'm as fired up to go. When I see big deer, I get as excited as I first did. Um, did you know, Phelps, what age was it that you were going to allow yourself to shoot a whitetail? I was going to start whitetail hunting at the age of 70. So as much hunting as this guy's done, which is like, like a lot, mm-hmm. he had never, ever shot a, well, until this year, had never shot a duck, had never shot a whitetail because he's so committed to elk and mule deer. Is that any type of whitetail? No, I was reserving that for the, the North American whitetail. Um, so I, I, the, the coos deer, um, but now he broke like, how old are you? 38. Yeah. So you've missed it by 32 years. But I feel like <laughs> even though these just carry the name of whitetail, it, the hunting can't be considered whitetail hunting. So you don't regret having gotten one. Oh, not at all. Like I, I was telling Jay before the podcast, like I'm trying to figure out how to go again next year. Yeah. He was asking a lot of questions about your outfit, Jay. <laughs> because yeah. someone said something, yeah, and he said something like, Jay says, if you really want to go see some coos deer, you got to go like, you know, eight miles south of the border. And we're like, no, nah, we're fine with our place. Like, we're going to stick to our place till the day we die. And Jason perked right up. He's like, so where now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you don't regret going and doing it? No, not one. It was, breaking your whitetail streak. It was extremely fun hunt. Like one of the best deer hunts I've ever been on. Yeah. What is it? Why is it so fun, man? It's hard to figure I, out I don't why know. it's so damn fun. I, I was trying to put it all together. I don't know if it's like the, I was telling Jay again before, like the combination of you're seeing just enough deer. I mean, it, it's still hard. These things are hard to spot even when you know they're in your, your optics. Um, you're seeing enough bucks, you know, it, it's almost seems like it's a one-to-one buck to doe ratio. So yeah. you're not just like glassing up 80 does a day to see two bucks. So it's like a good balance. They're just sneaky and, you know, do coos deer stuff enough to get away from you time and time again. So when you do spot them, it's not a guarantee. And it's just that combination of you're probably going to find success. It's just how it's all going to come together, um, which is kind of like the perfect mix. And then, you know, as Jay mentioned earlier, it's just that off-grid 
feel of it. You know, you got the cowboys running around and, you know, doing, you know, they, they basically work to live. And it was just, I don't know, it was just something cool about it. Just, you know, kind of untouched country, it seems like. Yeah, it is, Um, it's one of, uh, kind of like my favorite thing now is hunting youth deer season, which is two days long. I love hunting youth deer season with my kids. But um, it's kind of like a seasonal highlight. You just get so lost uh, mentally. It, it, you know, it, there's enough going on. I've talked about this a bunch of times before, but uh, like for me, I have the most fun when there's when something's detailed enough and hard enough that there's you don't have other things to think about. And once you get up and get going on the day, there's enough just like excitement and things happening, and um, like visual stimuli and this feeling of being like in another land that until you're until you go to bed, until you climb in your sleeping bag at night, it's like I don't think about anything about what I'm doing. I just think about what I'm doing. Yep. I mean, we might have like a few laughs, you know, throughout the day, which is just part of it. But for the most part, you're just it's like this kind of time just to really take whatever seven, eight days and just focus on something. I think one of the things too, it's like you said, such a visual aspect with the glassing. Um and and you you know, we glass everything we hunt up here in, you know, the the lower forty eight. But when you get to Mexico and when you're specifically hunting coos deer, it's so glassing intensive. Um, and and you can have a, a big buck and he's rutting a doe and you can have him right in the center of your binos. And you can literally start, look away for a second, open your pack to get your spotting scope out and go back in your binos. And you're like, they're gone. For the rest of the day. Where did they go? Where are they? What? I just looked away for a second. Then sometimes they're right there. Yeah, they they're never there. moved. Yep. So you just looked for, you looked away, you look back in and you say they're gone. Then you keep looking, keep looking, and they're in the exact same spot. Okay. Mm -hmm, yeah. <laughs> then there's times when you do the same thing and you look and they are gone. And I think to me, that's what makes coos deer so exciting is the fact that, you know, when a bull elk is standing there at you know, 1,200 yards and he's in your binos and you look away from your spotting scope, most of the time, as soon as you pop back in, he's right there. Yeah. A coos deer could literally be standing with his face, you know, turned this way and rack shining in the sun and you're clearly focused. You look away for a second, back in, and it's like you really have to look and he's not changed his pose at all. I had something very similar. We were, I was walking to meet up with Yanni and I was kind of done glassing a point. Um, and I look and, and naked eye one, it's, it's 220 yards away. I see it with my naked eye and it's, and I mark it because it's right. I just, in my head, I just realized it's at the sun line. The sun's coming up and it's at that line of like shade meets sun mm -hmm. on a hillside. I see it with my naked eye. I put my binoculars up and I register enough to be like, oh, it's a buck. And I go to sit down so I can get a more stable look. And then I'm like, that some bitch snuck away. And I knew where he was because he's on the shade line. And I looked and looked, and I'm starting to try to look to see where he might have gone. And I go back, and I realize, like you're saying, he hadn't moved. He's in the exact same position, mm -hmm. in the exact same shade line, and just like... And to me, that's the intrigue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, that's what really gets it for me. And then big deer, too. Um, you know, when you, when you are fortunate to get big deer in your hands, to me, they're so unique. Every rack is different, and that's what I like about them. You know, there's really no cookie cutter when you get big ones. There's really no cookie cutter racks. They're all different. They all are shaped different. You know, some are wide, some are tall, heavy, thin, whatever it may be, extra eye guards. 
But when you start getting big, mature coos deer, it's, mm-hmm. to me, that's just like the icing on the cake. Yeah. It's a cool critter, man. Yeah, it is. Uh, what was your take on it, Garrett? I mean, man, you've hunted whitetails. Yeah. Um, I feel like, but I wouldn't even say that it was whitetail hunting. Like, it mm-hmm. just, it felt like a cross between whitetail and mule deer. And then, like, this element of black bear hunting where you're, like, sitting and watching these fingers and waiting for, like, sun to come around and i think what i liked about it was you knew there was de- like you come to a face and you know there's deer on this face there's enough deer where you know there's going to be deer on this face somewhere you just have to find them and so it's like the most intense glassing session i've ever had in my life because it's like you know it's there like or you can even watch it walk into a little brush patch and you know there's a deer there and now you just got to spend your morning or all day in paul's case all freaking day <laughs> In one spot, looking at this, like, brush line, waiting to see the, like, little tiny... I mean, they're, like, how many pounds? What 100 it, pounds. 100 pounds. So it's like painting your dog kind of brownish gray and then trying to find them in the woods, you <laughs> yeah, know? It's like, yeah. And I think to add to that, too, is, like, when they go into that brush pile, you don't know if they went in there and they bedded down or they went right. in there, they're going to squirt back out. And then you're watching the brush pile and you may watch it for an hour and you're like... And then all of a sudden, like 30 yards to the left, you're like, I've been watching the whole time. Mm-hmm. And somehow that sucker squirted out from there over to here. And I've literally been watching. And now he's just standing there in the wide open. Yep. yep. You know what I mean? It's, yep. it, the to- buck the buck I got this year, uh, Phelps saw it, saw it go down in this little timbered hole. Rutting a doe or just? Yeah, he pushed. Well, he wasn't super interested, but just kind of followed her off. We surrounded the area. And I was even telling Yanni, I'm like, there's no way, if I'm sitting here, there's no way he's going to come east. And we kind of watch, and Yanni got where there's no way he's going west. I got there's no way he's going east. Both of us are going to see it if he goes to the north. Or no, both of us see if he went to the south. And there's one little, like, potential out the north. Always the back door. Yeah, and we sit there all morning, and I just happened to at one point look over and be like, well, he got out of the trap. I mean, I still got him. But it was like, and way out of the trap. Yeah. He was way out of the trap, but standing there in plain sight. To me, <laughs> over any other animal that I hunt, they have a way of like, we call it going in the tunnel system. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. we're all sitting around, like you guys were watching for that buck, and somehow he slipped out of there. And mm-hmm. it's not like you're farting around, you know, digging around in the pack, or you're doing whatever. Everybody's looking. And then all of a sudden, someone's like, hey, I got him. He's way over here. And you're thinking, how in the world did that even happen? Yeah. To yep. me, they're the only animal that I hunt that kind of have that element of like, they're small enough and they're wary enough that they just do that. I was really nervous going into this because I don't have patience typically when I'm hunting. I, you know, I'm like, I don't see anything. Let's go see what's over the next ridge. And I didn't think I could sit there that long, but these quickly proved that you could sit there and just, you were always expecting to find something, you know, it it might take all day, but you just, it kept your hopes up. I think all day, just sitting there, like you'd glass the same tree, the same bush, the same shadow all day long, not see anything. And then all of a sudden there's one standing in the middle that you have no idea how it got there. Garrett made a comment. He's like, I don't want it to be, I don't need it to help me, but I would like when I finish glassing a spot and I won't take any action, I would like a way to know how many were there. Right. Did I cover it? <laughs> He's yeah. like, I'm not, I'm not going to go back. I'm not going to exploit the information, but I would like at, when I'm all done, I would like someone to tell me 
Uh, Garrett, you missed eight bucks laying on that hillside. Which might be just <laughs> maddening, too. Yeah. You know? Just to know what you're missing. I, I think one of the things, too, with Coos Deer that, that gets me so fired up is kind of the strategy and tactical standpoint of, like, if you can consistently be looking in the places where those deer are the most, you're going to see more. It sounds real elementary, but I have to be constantly you know, on my podcast and, and Instagram, I answering, answering a lot of questions. And, and that is you want to use the sun in the morning at your back. So you're using that sun to brighten and illuminate the hillsides because they pop. Yeah. But then you want to reverse that. Okay. As the sun is, 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 you know, getting till midday and afternoon, you want to be focused with the sun in your face, looking in the shade. And if you can focus your afternoon glassing, a lot of people like to use the same thing and let the sun shine in the afternoon. Well, they are looking where 10% of the deer are. The other 90% are on the other side of the aspect of the hill. They're on the shady side of the hill. Really? Absolutely. In the evening. So you want to be in the evening. This is something I didn't know because I, if I had, if I, I usually try to make a move to get where I'm looking at the illuminated stuff in the evening. No. So if you do the opposite, I bet you'll see 50, 60% more deer than what you saw the night before. You're late. You're waiting for them to come out of the shade. So I, in the afternoon, I am, I, when I get to a property or I get to a new place where I'm hunting coos deer, I say, where is the most predominant afternoon shade? 365 days a year, which hillsides give those deer the most shade? Why do they want the most shade? Because it's most, you know, you're there in January when it's cool, but most of the time in Mexico, it's very hot. So those animals learn to find on all those ranches, the hillsides that give them the coolest spot to lay. So if you focus your attention in the morning with the sun helping you, which ironically it's the same side of the hill. So you don't really have to shift much. Mm -hmm. So that's going to tell you that those deer are going to be on those east facing slopes, those north facing slopes a lot. They come over to the south, chase a little bit, but they very rarely will bed on those south facing slopes. They're in the thick brush. And so in the afternoon, when, when I started, you know, helping people try and focus, it, it would be no different than you, Jason, helping them with an elk tactic. Focus on the shade in the afternoon. You're going to see way more bucks and you're going to find more mature bucks. Hmm. 100%. I, it's like something I'm adamant about. Glass into the shade in the afternoon. It's and I think, I think mule deer hunters could take it too because, um, you know, a lot of the arid places where mule deer are, they seek shade. You know, elk do too. So in the, in the morning, you want to look with the sun and flip around and just seek shade. So well, down nine, there, like what exposure is it? So you're looking at east facing slopes, okay? Because the sun. So you're generally you're generally always going to want an east facer. I'm east and north north north. Excuse me, east north and northeast facing slopes. You will find more coos deer bucks. Mm -hmm. The does, I would say, frequent the south facing slopes more than the bucks do. So when you do have rutting, you do have those does on the south facing slopes, bucks will come over, but a lot of times they'll push those does over and find a shade pocket. Hmm. So if you're, if you're looking in the afternoon, using the sun to your advantage, you are looking where only 10% of the deer are. 
Can you explain for everybody how, like, how does deer management work in Mexico? And how is deer management just different than the way it works in the, in the United sure. States? So I, I don't know the exact percentage, but I would say 98, 99% of property in Mexico is private land. Yeah. Uh, those private land, most of those ranches are active and working cattle ranches. Uh, in order to register your ranch, you have to get a survey done from a quote unquote wildlife biologist, which would be a Mexican wildlife biologist. Who works for the state. Who works so for the state or not sure if it's better state. Okay. They come out and they do their surveys at night with a spotlight. They drive down the road and they count eyes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then they look at the number of hectares, which is, or acres. Yep. Um, that the property is, and they kind of have a, well, we saw, you know, 42 eyeballs and this amount of time, and it's this many hectares, so we'll give you eight tax. And they're- They're very conservative. I would- Do you find, do you, would you agree with that? So a general rule of thumb from an outfitter's perspective, if a ranch has 12 tags, I would say it's good to harvest six. If oh. it, If it gets 18, it would be nine. If it gets six, it would be three. I always like to oh, take- Oh, really? I thought like when you look at the massive size of those places, then you see the number of tags that they issue them. I'm like, man, they're being pretty conservative. Well, in my opinion, though, so 100 inch bucks and bigger, as you know, you've hunted down there, what, seven, eight years yeah. or so. Um, they're hard to find because they're the older, they're the four, five, six, seven year old deer. Well, they, you know, coyotes are after them, lions are after them. Poachers are after them. I, I look at Mexico, in my opinion, when the ranchers get their tags, I always like to cut them in half. If they get 12 tags and they kill 12 deer, in my opinion, two, three, four years, there won't be any mm. four-year-old bucks left. I mean, if you got like high test hunters in there who are looking for big right, bucks. Right, yeah. and, and But then you have properties that are high density and low density. And I would say that the survey method isn't exactly the most scientific, counting eyeballs with a spotlight for a couple hours or a couple nights in a row, I don't think you could get a real, I think you could ask a group of, like you guys, hunted there for seven days, how many deer are on the property? I think you could come closer than someone driving around with a spotlight. Yeah, I got you. Um, But, so they register the ranch and then the rancher, the owner of the property is issued those tags. It would be like in some of these states where there are quote unquote landowner tags. Yep then they're free to do what they want with those tags. But when they're cowboys, shoot a deer, mm-hmm. if they do. There's no way people are putting tags on no, those deer. They, uh, and so that's the element from an outfitter's perspective that I always have to manage is, are cowboys shooting deer? Because there's some ranches that ranchers uh, maybe haven't had their property uh, out or registered Mm-hmm. And gotten their UMA registration so they don't place a value on those deer. So from an outfitter's perspective, I try and shy away from those properties. If I show up and there's deer legs all over and there's hanging racks all over, that's a really good indication that, hey, these cowboys are shooting, uh, shooting deer. Completely um, outside of the system of like the, right, outside of the tag right. system. So you've yeah. got the tag system and then you've just got, hey, we're going to shoot a deer. Like the, pot hunting. The, the deer that, sh- you know, they just shoot to eat. Those obviously don't get tagged, but you have to watch. Um, And I try and look for owners that 
place value on their wildlife by not letting the cowboys shoot their deer. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then once they see a value in those deer, they really start to understand management more and more. One of the struggles that I have is trying to explain to owners, yes, you get 12 tags, but if we shot 12 deer this year, none of these American guys would want to come back next year because we've basically shot every mature deer on the property. Yeah. And certainly if you did that for a couple of years, then you would just have two and three-year-old deer running around. Have you ever heard any ballpark as to um, how many deer per square mile I, I are did. down in that country? I haven't. But w- the the thing about Mexico that has always intrigued me, say more than Arizona, other than some of the things we've already talked about, is the fact that you tend to see more as many bucks as you do does. Yeah. So we, in, we marveled about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the part that's so awesome is getting to see bucks. I mean, that's what fires me oh, up. Oh, when is, you see like, when you're glassing along and all of a sudden you realize you saw a, a, a tail flick, I mean, like, you know. Pretty good chance In your head, you're like, you're, you're already, you're like, well, that's probably a buck. Right. And, <laughs> and if you hunt in Arizona, you know, you could go and see 50 or 60 does and see three bucks. Well, if you see 50 or 60 deer in Mexico, probably 20 of them, 30 of them are bucks. That's the difference. Yeah. So it's it's almost like a target-rich environment. You know, if from an aspect of I can't wait to see what the next buck I see is, that's what I just love about Mexico. I think that's what makes getting out of the sleeping bag so exciting down there, man, is you're always just like, dude, today could be the day. Yeah, and, and going to when they're rutting um, is, a, is a really cool thing because I feel like, you know, I spend all September at the Ot 6 Ranch watching elk rut. And I've done that for a long, long time. Um, but I feel like getting to watch coos deer truly rutting in their environment is a really neat thing. Uh, when we were down there, guys, we were always like, man, if Jay was here, I'd ask him, what do you guys, I don't want to dominate the whole conversation here. I, I think the glassing thing was one of them. I feel like we were circling the mountain a lot and probably at the wrong time of the day. Yeah. I had, listen, and it's Jay's fault. <laughs> Until this moment, he has never, in all the interactions I've had with the man, he's never explicitly told me that. Mm. So you just remember this. <laughs> you never explicitly told you me You want to, whatever. You have cost of, me a lot of yeah, opportunities. I've, I've cost you a lot of big bucks. <laughs> when you go to a property, whether it's in Mexico or anywhere else, what you want to find is where is the most predominant afternoon shade on this mountain? That's where you start. Hmm. Day in and day out, where if I wanted to get out of the sun, where would I go sit? That's another way to think of it. In other words, it's hot. Where am I going? Well, if I get on that ridge and sit on that face, that's going to be the shadiest spot on this ranch. That's where you want to go. And then you branch out from there. Mm-hmm. And you always hit those shade pockets. Now I'm reviewing in the, in the times we've hunted at the place we hunt. I'm reviewing all of our like known buck pockets. I need to go, I need to get on the map and go look and see if they conform. Well, and, and the other thing is I get people, there's always exception to the rule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's always those thick patch of mesquite or oak that does provide shade that is on a south facing slope, 
but they know they can scurry their way up there and they can lay there all day and they can get a nice breeze and they get shade. Yeah. So I don't want to say that you can't find deer on west facing slopes or uh, south I'm not facing the kind of, I'm not the kind of guy that's like, yeah, but what about, like, I get what you're saying. But I, totally I, I would saying. even tell you in Montana, if you focused your buck hunting on, on shaded afternoon slopes, you're going to find more mule deer bucks. I, I got a question. I do know my question. So when we were looking at some of these bigger mountains out there, I, I found myself, like when you go elk hunting, right, and you're looking at this mountain, usually what I end up doing is I go to the tree line and I look like just below where the tree line is. And I kept wanting to do that with coos, right? You'd like look at this rocky point and be like, God, the biggest buck on the ranch has to be right below that rocky point at the top of the mountain. Is that true? Or are they just like, because of pressure, just all up and down the mountain, it doesn't matter. I would tell you, I like to go to the top of the mountain and look down. Whereas a lot of people like to go and look up. I feel like if you're up and looking across or down and across, you can, the grass is tall. So now you can see at the angle you're looking into the grass rather than if the grass is here, you're looking up and you've got a very short angle window there. When you're up looking down, it increases your spectrum of like, I guess it's increasing your angle. Um, but as far as like where are big bucks in relation to the top or the middle or the bottom of the hill, I would tell you in Arizona where they're getting pressured, the furthest away from roads you can get, the, you know, the, the deep, dark hidey holes or even the top of the mountain where no one's getting, that's where your older age class bucks are going to be. In Mexico, it doesn't really translate because no one's hunting them. You're, you know, so they, it's not like, oh yeah, six groups have already gone through here. They've killed all the easy stuff. Let's go to the top. But what I like to do is like hour before light, hiking with a flashlight, headlamp, get to the top. I like cone peaks because I can get up there and very quickly, you know, those cone peaks are very rarely like as small as this table. They're more like this room or twice the size of this room. You can bounce there and cover a bunch of different country from like you're one glassing spot. the peak you're on i'm on the peak looking at the other country so i like to go to cone knob peaks where i can just glass for 30 minutes here bounce to the other side glass for 30 minutes bounce over here to the yep, north side yep. glass and cover and be on the highest thing around highest thing around and cover basically all of the country in a six hour period and look at a ton more country if that mm, makes sense yeah, because yeah. you can very easily just bop around it's much like walking a ridgeline where you can look left and look right as you're going up a ridgeline or down a ridgeline. That gives me twice as much country to look at. Mm -hmm. Mega glass. I was wondering, uh, yeah, I was wondering on this trip, yeah, there's a place that you had marked for us. Mega glass. Yeah. That no one's ever glassed from. Yeah. We always laugh about the place called Mega Glass. That's where, that's where I'd go. <laughs> really? Because <laughs> I'm going to tell you why. Well, here's, why we here's why we laugh about Mega Glass so much. Is, um, it's thick. Yeah, we're like, whoever... Uh, Put this there. They found it on a topo map. <laughs> <laughs> Giannis has asked me about Mega Glass before. For whatever reason, that canyon where Mega Glass is, I just envision a big buck being Oh, there. listen, we hunt the piss out of that area, but we just don't hunt it for Mega Glass because you'd have to bring like some repelling equipment. <laughs> I want to be on the highest knob that I can get to yeah. most every time. Yeah, that'd be Mega Glass. 
No, we always laugh up. That's our primary landmark, Mega Glass. And then it brings in two big glass too. I like using, you know, twenty five power. I've had, you know, I've had basically every pair of big binos that made, you know, thirty two power, forty power. I like using big glass as well. And they're but I also like glassing through fifteens. I also like glassing through tens, close stuff, but then I also like really reaching out there and, you know, looking yeah. into those shaded slopes. I- I have a question for you, Jay, as far as like, how long do you invest in an area to like dig up a big buck? You know, like a blacktail, I might hunt the same area for 30 days and never see him again or seen him at night or on a camera where it seems like when we did find a buck, we would see him again and again in that area, like heavy eight, um, you know, the buck that Garrett ended up shooting, like they were bucks that we had seen in that area again, Paul's buck, we seen him there. Yeah, we found him and we're able to find him again. So if I know they're there, I won't leave. If, if, if I, if I know there's a big buck there, um, you know, if, if someone had seen a big buck, um, I know that that deer likely is within 500 yards of where someone saw him. Is that right? Yeah. They run a real, so when they rut, they, the bucks cover a lot of country. Um, but does pretty much live within an 800, it's proven, uh, Richard Ockenfell study, you should, I don't think he's alive anymore, but Arizona Game and Fish, Richard, Richard Ockenfeld's collared a bunch of deer and studied uh, buck and doe and how they travel. Heffelfinger probably knows all about it. Um, and they say that a, a coos deer doe spends her whole life within an 800-meter circle. No kidding, man. Yeah. So that that goes huh. to show like where where those bucks are, they're going to go find those does, but they're so homebodied and so habitual that like if if I knew that there was a big buck in the canyon, I probably would bounce around and get different angles in the canyon. But if I know he's there, I'm not leaving. So, all right. So let's flip the question a little bit. Say you're glass and you feel like you're doing a really good job. You've given it your all. Like, are you given a good bucky looking area like two days and then you're going to go find a new area or? It, like, every spot and, is different and it's kind of a gut thing and you just have to, the worst thing you can do when you're glassing is be second guessing. And I do it all the time. You're second guessing. I am else? I wasting my time? So you have to kind of bridge that gap of like, I have to invest the time and I have to literally know that this deer may only stand up 10 minutes of daylight and I've got to catch him when he's standing up in those 10 minutes. Okay. That's one train of thought. You've got to watch that your mind wanders going, the buck isn't here. You've been looking for three days. I can't tell you how many times that Dar and I have pounded over a country looking and just covering different angles, looking in the same spot. And five days later, the buck stands up and he's there the whole time. Mm Mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest mistakes coos deer hunters make is when they find a big buck, they take their eye off it. That's a whole nother subject. But I always tell people, if you find a big buck, do not for any reason, take your eye off it. I don't care whether you're using hand signals, whether you're using radios, whatever your comfort of, of communication, whatever you want to do. But if you're trying to kill big bucks, Keep your eye, someone has to watch that deer at all times. To, to an extent of like Dar and I always laugh, uh, I know that if Dar finds a big buck, I know that he's not taking his eye off. If he has to go to the bathroom, it doesn't, if he, he, he will not take his eyes out of those binos on that big buck. And that's how we have been very successful in killing big bucks is that 
when you hunt with guys that do not take their eye off the deer, the chances of that deer getting away are go way down. If you get, dig your lunch out of your pack and you get up and you take a leak and you stretch and you, he could have just popped over the hill. Now you're looking in a canyon that all you'd have to do is just know that he popped up 30 yards. You don't even know that because you took your eye off him. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, 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 it's not rocket science, but it, it, it's funny how I talk to a lot of people and they're like, yeah, I had this big buck and I had him and he was rutting this doe and he was chasing her all around and I needed to get closer. I said, well, wait a minute. Who was watching it? <laughs> Who was watching it? He goes, well, I, I was alone. I said, well, you didn't watch it till it bedded down, till it was hot, till you knew that the deer had a chance to probably lay for at least an hour where then you could move and get in position. Well, no, it was first thing in the morning. It was first light and he was chasing the doe, and it, he was just a sitting duck. I said, well, yeah, but he's running around chasing a doe and now you don't know where he is. Yeah. So what I try and do is tell people like, watch the buck, keep your eye on him, bed him down, try and stay 30 minutes to make, because a lot of times they'll bed down. They do this all the time. They'll come in, run around, they'll lay down. 15, 20 minutes, they get up and change beds. They don't like where they're laying. So I watch for like 30 minutes. Yep, he's not moving. And then I make my move. And then one other tip, and I don't know why I've turned this into like, you know, Jay's tips, but. No, it's great. <laughs> um, always mark the landmark where you saw the buck, the dead oak tree with the limb that points out to the right or the white rock or whatever it may be. Even take your phone out and take a picture. Because when you cross a canyon, get up on another knob, you get over there and it always looks different. Yeah. Always. I think that's a good That's tip. the thing I'm always harping to people about is it's just, you got it in your head that it's like a, a, a little peak and there's a ridge coming off it. And you get over there and it's just not. It changed. Yeah, you know, the not. perspective, the, the angle changed and it looks different. How many times have you got over and you're like, I've been watching this deer for three hours. And you're like, where is he? Oh, there's the rock. It's way down here. I thought it was more of a perspective that it was up here. Well, when I got over on this point, it's now lower. Mm-hmm. Um, those are all little tricks that, you know, I've just, I've learned so many times the hard way and those deer have gotten away that I kind of have a system that I go about hunting them. I want to get to the biggest, like the thing that comes up most when talking about hunting the border country in Mexico. Give me your, like, what is your perspective on, like, the security risk? So, I mean... Like, you can't tell me it's absolutely zero. Oh, no, it's not zero. No, I mean... Like, what's... Give me your sort of, after all these years, like, where are you at on it? So, I don't think there's anybody in the world that would deny that there's stuff going on within 30, 40, 50 miles of the border on either side that that would blow our mind. Mm -hmm. Um, I would argue that that there's probably worse things going on on the U.S. side because now whatever's going on is really illegal and they're trying to get, whether it be drugs or, you know, people trafficking or whatever, they're trying to get them to the destination. Whereas in Mexico, um, I, I, other than being able to call the authorities, if you will, call the Border Patrol, call you know, FBI, whoever you may, police, whatever, whoever you may call, I feel like in Mexico, it's actually safer mm-hmm. because there's designed routes and, and, and things that, you know, those, those people want to push things through and 
Certainly, there, we've all heard stories of ranches where, oh, yeah, we had, you know, traffickers just trafficking through. We just don't hunt there. We're not, I'm, I'm not going to put me or anybody else in a situation where I knowingly have a situation where things like that are going on. So you'll see activity 30 miles south of the border. So we, we, debated, we debated this, like, but, but and, what needs to happen there? Like, I don't understand. So there's a lot of staging and there's a lot of different things, travel routes. So, you know, it's not like I'm an expert. I'm just speculating. I've watched Narcos Mexico like everybody else, but yeah. you know, they're bringing product in from other countries and they're bringing it in through the ports. They're bringing it in through boats in the ocean. They're bringing it in, uh, via airplanes and they have to have a place to stage and then they have to have a place to be able to get stuff driven from there to, from point A to point B. Uh, I'm with you. Yeah, I understand. Um, yeah. So I was thinking more like foot traffic, but you mean like just like like infrastructure for narco trafficking. Yeah, and yeah. so like the foot traffic, the people crossing thing, I mean, they literally drive them up within 500, 500 yeah. feet of the border okay. and they cross. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a whole nother story. I used to have guys that, that work for me. I'm, I'm, I'm a real estate investor and constantly kind of improving properties and building stuff. And I've used a lot of guys from Mexico to build all kinds of stuff, incredibly talented, but they would tell me stories like, Hey, uh, it's Christmas time. Uh, we're going to go home for a while. We'll be back in about a month. So when they'd get back, I'd be like, so how was it? Oh, we had to walk like 50 miles. It was fine. Um, you know, then stories of, oh, we had to walk and we ran into some bad guys and they took our shoes. Hmm. You know, like if you don't use a certain trap or I guess a coyote mm -hmm. and you're with someone else or you're on your own, just crossing the border, walking back in, they're going to take your shoes because you didn't use them. You didn't pay them. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, hear stories like that. But as far as safety... Um, when I'm outfitting the coos deer and the Goulds turkey, it's always my number one thing. I want to hunt properties that were, that are not around that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I try and limit the exposure to that stuff because it does go on. Um, I can tell you in 26 years, like, you know, the stories of like, oh, our group of cars got stopped by a caravan with guys with machine guns. It's never happened. Ne I've never seen that. I know Never lost a hunter. I know people. <laughs> I know people that that's happened too. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it is, you know, taking care of tr of hunting on ranches that that's not going on. Hunting in areas where that's not going on, and then we don't travel at night. We travel within the ranch locked gates at night, but we make it a point. Highways, whatever roads, you just don't travel in Mexico at night. It's a good rule of thumb for safety. Have I done it? Sure, I've traveled at night mostly by myself. Would I do it with people? No. Do I make it a practice to? No. Have I done it? A few times. Yes. We use, when we cross, we, Jay has a network of people he knows, bilingual people he knows and trusts who live on the Mexico side. And when we cross, we use one of Jay's guys who drives, escorts us. Yeah. We have a little two or three car caravan. Like this year we had my truck. We had a Can-Am on a trailer. Which was the first year you guys have brought that? Did you really? It was awesome. Dude, it all changed that. Yeah. everything. Be able to get around. It changed everything. Yeah, yeah. It, we brought down. I brought down a. Um, I have a four door Can Am side by side. Yeah. You could get everywhere. Changed. Yeah. And, and I had my. It, and I had my F one fifty. And you could do it quickly. Yeah, yeah. I got my F one fifty. It's got like a you know, two inch 
lift on the front, airbags on the back, good tires, mm-hmm. right? Um, we could drive that anywhere, drive the K&M everywhere. We got everywhere we wanted to go. It changed everything than trying to limp around in like rented minivans. Yeah. Changed everything. Yeah, I mean... We had a great year. We had our best year ever. And we're kind of like, why was it our best year ever? And Yanni and me were like, why was it our best year ever? And we're like, the transportation thing has to be a huge factor. Yeah, you guys have been renting uh, trucks and, and driving around. And, and these roads across the board and on these Mexican ranches, because of the monsoon rains, the roads get washed out very, very easily, very, mm-hmm. very quickly. Um, pretty much with, you know, any UTV, any quad, you can get around and kind of rock crawl and do, do what you need you want, to do. Man. When trucks, you're fairly limited. Um, one thing I'll point out, and then we can get back to the people that help. Yeah, you know, yeah I want to touch on that but, before we close. Um, is for anybody listening, if you're doing a DIY hunt, uh, that you need to know that you need the truck, the trailer, and the UTV all to be in the driver's name. In other words, Steve, you couldn't yeah, use my truck, my trailer, your my truck, yep. and, and Garrett's quad. You can't mix ownership. They want to see Steve Ranella, Steve Ranella, Steve Ranella on truck, trailer, and UTV or quad. Yep. You can't put Jason's quad on your trailer. It would have to all match your name. You get a vehicle transportation permit um, when you go a certain distance south of the border. Um, and then there are some quote unquote travel free zones that you don't have to get a permit. But most of my ranches, you have to get a vehicle permit. And that's just something that everyone has to have a passport. Uh, everyone has to uh, get that transportation permit. Yeah, so we use, when we cross, we use someone to come help us with the paperwork. Yep. Which doesn't, can be or doesn't need to be the same person that we use to escort us. I think it's important to have that translator. You know, to have someone that knows the process because right there at the border, you know, you get your gun, you get your transportation permits, you get your gun permits checked at the police. You, you know, you're basically doing all your border stuff. Then you travel about a mile away to the military where then that person helps you get your guns crossed at the military. And a long time ago, I figured out that it made crossings a lot smoother if I had one of my people there that understands the process and any little things that come up, uh, they can handle and talk to who they need to talk to to get everything uh, okay. If you Yeah. Our, the place we're hunting is only, as the crow flies, it's only like 15 miles from the border, 17 right. miles. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, it's a 30 minute drive. We came to one a National Guard check station they had mm-hmm. set up, and our and our escort, who we become friends with over the years, he spoke to the guys and then just waved us all through. Yeah, we never even had to have an interaction. And then we get out to our place, and then like you say, when we're talking about like you're a hundred years back in time, we get out to our place, unload our food in a ranch house, and then it's like all that shit is just gone. Yeah, it, it's, it's just gone. It's a nice feeling to kind of be able to wash that away. Now, don't get me wrong, like on the ranch you guys have, there's a few hills that you can go up and boom, you get cell service, you can check in, so yeah, it makes yeah. it kind of nice. It's bittersweet. Um, <laughs> but, and, and, and people ask me all the time, they're like, will we see checkpoints? I say, listen, when you're on the highway and you come across a military or police checkpoint, it's a good thing. They're like, how is that a good thing? And I say, well, they are actually monitoring the roadways. They're keeping it safe. So by actually having a checkpoint, they're keeping it safer than if there was no checkpoint and it's just willy-nilly out there. Yeah. All right, man. So you, like, you don't do any DIY Gould stuff. All your Gould stuff is guided. Yeah. So this will be my 13th season doing Goulds. 
Um, I believe I had you down there in maybe my first or second season. I feel like my Gould's turkey operation has really blossomed. Uh, we've got a lot of phenomenal properties. Now, why don't, because you let guys, so not let, you have guided coos deer hunts where you do, you get, you got you guys, and then you have, like you do for us, where you arrange. Yeah, like, so I have DIY coos. Yep, and you arrange like a coos. property, you arrange mm-hmm. a tag system, help everybody hunt, and then they're on their own. How can we not do, how, why don't you do that for Goulds? You know, I've thought about it. Um, it's a good question. I've thought about it and thought, you know, I've, I've kind of run through the different scenarios and I just always keep coming back to guided Goulds is probably a better scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, details, I don't really know why. It just seems like maybe we'll do some in the future. But it's just your gut feeling. Yeah. Because me and Yanni were going to talk you into letting us do it. Well, I could definitely arrange you guys to come and do it. <laughs> And uh, how, how far into the future are you booked up? For Goulds or for Coos? No, for Coos Deer. So I'm booking right now for next January. Okay. Um, and, and a lot of guys like to really book, you know, 24, 25. I, I try not to get too far over my skis. I just try and, you know, soon, I'll, I'll book for 2023 even before I go in 2022. But I right now, when we just finished the 2022 January season, I don't really like booking 24, 25, 26. I just prefer to kind yeah. of stay out 23. Um, you know, I've got a great schedule lined up for Gould's Turkey. Still have some opportunity uh, for this 2022. For uh, the spring, spring coming up. Yeah. Oh, you do? Mm-hmm. Yep. See, that's the thing because like you get like like guys like me who I'm, um, if I, I, I might become a world slam holder, but the super slam turkey thing, you need to get that Gould's Turkey. Yeah. That, it's hard. It, I, I get so many people, most everyone that comes for Gould's is basically wanting to check Gould's turkey off the list. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's funny though, when they come down, you've seen Gould's, they're just amazing bird, um, how they become person that wanted to check it off the list, but then now they've come three, four, five years in a row because of the, the hunting is so good. Yeah. I got a hot tip for people on the, uh, if you're doing the DIY, uh, coos hunts with Jay. If you got a friend, like, what does it wind up being? Like, a, a ranch has got three tags, four tags, six tags, whatever the hell. You put together a group of guys, right? Yeah. Man, if you, just to enhance, the, you don't need to, but to enhance the experience, if you got someone who's, like, pretty checked out on Spanish so that you can talk to the cowboys. Yeah, the, the cowboys. Like, we had two guys this year. Where Yanni's getting pretty good. Ross Copperman from First Light was with us. He's pretty good. Ross and it just, is real good, man. Yeah. Because it winds up being like, you see some things that you, it kills you that you can't ask, like, like what is with whatever? Yeah. Why is it like this? Yeah. yeah. Or like, or like where, like some giant drop antler, where, like, where'd that come from? Yeah. Yeah. It's so nice if someone could go and hack their way through with the cowboys that are out riding around. Yeah. It's you, real helpful. One thing you do have to watch with cowboys, it's it's just human nature is, you know, there's some that, oh, yeah, there's big bucks everywhere and they're pointing to mountains and stuff. So you kind of got to learn which ones know what a big yeah, buck is. Our, or, our main buddy down there at our place, there's no buck you can bring in that he won't <laughs> be like, oh, no, no, no. Yeah, that's not a big one. No, yeah, no, no. Yeah. What are you doing? And yeah. then we're like, where? And he just points like, he's like, yeah, kind of there, 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 everywhere. He said that there's bucks bigger than Steve's everywhere on that place. Yeah. And I mean, that's common. The, the other common thing is they, there's two things. I say, how many points? 12. Every, it doesn't matter which, if I'm in Chihuahua or Sonora, whatever state I'm in, you ask the cowboy, what's the biggest buck on the ranch? It's 12 pointer. 
you know, I've never seen a 12 pointer in my <laughs> life. And every ranch you go to, Dose. And, and then the other one is they have nicknames for them. Oh, it's the same it. nickname. Doing Mark Kenyon. They call him El Negro. Oh. Because their cape is dark. Oh. It doesn't matter what ranch you go to, they're like a grande buck named El Negro lives on that hill. You know, you know what his name is in Michigan? Points. What? It's old Mossy Horns. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, it just, it's funny to me how it doesn't matter where you're at, they're, all the big ones are El Negro because, and when you do kill a big mature buck, a lot of times their cape is a lot darker. A lot darker, yeah. Yep. Uh, all right, we're going to wrap up. Tell people how to find you. Probably the best way is to send me an email at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. Uh, my Instagram, jscottoutdoors. Um, Colburn and Scott Outfitters on Instagram. Uh, I, I answer my direct- Plug your podcast, dude, while you're at it. So I have to credit you and Yanni. Uh, my podcast will be seven years old uh, in about two weeks. I started very quickly after I remember you and Yanni sent me your pilot episode, and I said, well, what's a podcast? I started, and it's um, my podcast is much more boring than your podcast. It's real informational, uh, real educational. Puts a lot of people to sleep, but uh, it's been a, tactics and a lot of tactics, a lot, lot of, of tactics and strategy on yeah. all sorts of big game. Uh, Jay Scott Outdoors podcast. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you said how people define you if they want a book. Yep. Uh, just jscottoutdoors.com. I mean, there's a lot of just type in Jay Scott Outdoors and Google and you'll find me. Yeah. We've been doing stuff with Jay for honestly, like we've been doing stuff with you for a decade. I think it's 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And um, again, man, turkey and buffalo. You know, again, have just. Uh, I've said it a bunch of times, have just been throughout every interaction, just always impressed with how you run your program. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah. Just like no, just clean, clear, no bullshit, honest dealing, highest ethics. It's like, it's just been a pleasure to to do all that, to range all those cool hunts with you over the years. Well, I appreciate it. I, I really value my reputation and, and I never want anyone to have a bad experience or a bad hunt. So, you know, I feel like sometimes I take it to heart, maybe even more than I should sometimes. Uh, that sounds kind of bad, but. That's the, ta- um, that's the bullet uh, taken I, I was talking I, I, about. <laughs> I really, I really uh, want people to have a smile and really want them to love Mexico like I do. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's important to me. Yeah. Well, I hope you keep at it, man. We all had a great time. Um, I'm always waiting for my text message from you saying it's time to commit. I need you to get you back down for Gould's Turkey. I feel like I'll do that. you did it 10 years ago. Well, Yanni's um, hot to trot, so I can go down and watch him. I feel like, too, like in your turkey hunting life spectrum, when you hunted Gould's, I feel like you were a little bit new. Sure, yeah. And I feel like you might appreciate it even more now yeah. that you've I hadn't seen. I hadn't seen as much. Right. Nearly as much at that time as and I have the, now. The birds yeah. are amazing. There's a bunch of them. They gobble and strut. I mean, they're just phenomenal. Yeah. Oh, I'll do it. I'll do it. You ever get a Gould's Phelps? You probably, are you anti-turkey? No. I oh, love, no, you're pro-turkey. Yeah, I love yeah. turkey. Hunting. He's anti-whitetails, but he's not. He's pro-turkey. Yeah, yeah pro-turkey. <laughs> <laughs> the Goulds are on the list. Oh, they are? Yeah. Right. Got any concluding thoughts, Paul? Just give me like thumbs up or thumbs down on Mexico. I loved it. Yeah, it was, it was a good trip. I uh, The whole thing. 
like Steve said, the whole experience was a blast. Yeah, did you get some time, good man. food too? I didn't ask you guys that. Uh, That's lot, some of the best, of it, isn't dude. it? Yeah, lots of good food. So By day tortillas. seven, though, you're like, I don't know if I want to see any refried beans anymore. The main thing is we just laughed our asses off. Man. Yeah. We uh, one thing before we close, Steve, Jason, and I got you a little present. Oh, you did? Yeah, coming out of Mexico, we know that you were very self conscious about a certain pair of shoes because you didn't want to be a poser. Oh. So I got you a pair of Hey Dudes. Oh, so you're going to, but you don't think I'm going to be a poser? Well, no, no because now, oh, yeah, now, buddy. now if somebody sees, <laughs> if somebody sees you in Hey Dudes. Is that why you asked me what my shoe size was? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you lied. I did. Oh, yeah. Man. And I was he asking. Was lying about why he needed to know. This I asked phenomenal. Katie and then she's like, I think 11, but then she never got, so we, we went a different oh. route. Yeah. I'm always admiring, uh, I'm always admiring Phelps' hey dude loafers, but he was telling me that ropers wear them, and I don't want it. I thought it'd be, like if I, it'd be like if I got a ten gallon hat, and he said, "No, you can pull it off." Yeah. All hat, no cattle. Yeah, yeah. And he t- said like an old dad type guy like me could wear these. The, the way we oh, figure yeah, is now, now you can be like, uh, if someone's like, "Oh yeah, hey dudes," you're like, "Oh yeah, my buddy's got them for me," but you don't have to like even take credit that. for yeah, it. So yeah, you yeah. Can, yeah. yeah. You people are like, "Dude, it. you shouldn't have those." I'd be like, "Ah, oh, my buddy's got them." I got to wear them every once in a while. I'm pulling my hot-ass boot off and putting this thing on. It might change your life. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It's like Crocs, but not made out of rubber. I do, I have one little closing thought while you're trying your shoes on. Look at that. Um, I since, just... I'm, <laughs> since I'm a guy that wants to go back to Mexico and Coos Hunt, and let's not like only talk about how fun it was and all the good stuff... I want to t- focus on like the thorns and the cactus, like I that are in your butt and knees. Pokes you. Yeah, no, I'm I'm just joking with you, uh, Jay. Like, oh, it's horrible. Not not it? deterring anybody from going to me- going to Mexico. It was amazing, but you shouldn't go to Mexico just to make sure there's the number tags one for thing me. you should have in your pack is tweezers. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a great idea. I had my wife digging one out of my finger the other day. Yeah, it got w- to do too much for me to handle, so she dug it out for me. Yeah, my wife says you're on your own. Even though I'm gonna, even though I'm gonna leave her over the ski situation, she still, she still did me a good turn on. She still did me a good turn on my sliver picking. All right, man, we got to wrap it up. Jay Scott, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Don't screw us on our place. I'll try not to. We're coming back. You got a lifelong customer in Phelps. Don't screw it up. I'll do my best. Thank you very much, man. All right, Jay Scott, Jay Scott Outdoors, Jay Scott Podcast, Colburn and Scott Outfitters. Right? Yep. That covers it. Okay. In the meantime, uh, Phelps, Phelps game calls. I just hit him up for some turkey calls for the spring. Yep. And uh, Paul with FHF Gear at FHFgear.com. That's it. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. First Light has always made the world's best base layers. They're warm, breathable, silent, and odor-resistant. But the women's fit and the gear weren't meeting our demands, so we went back to the beginning and rebuilt everything. Re-engineering the gear with the most dedicated female hunters in mind, First Light modernized the fit and added more sizes, colors, and camo patterns. 
I personally have been testing the women's gear over the last couple of years uh, from the mountains in Idaho to the plains in Nebraska, and I feel like the fit especially has landed in a much better spot. It's more true to size. It's not as tight and binding in certain areas like a lot of women's fit. Uh, All of the pieces, to me, got an all-around upgrade. It's awesome to see. So for yourself or as a gift this Mother's Day, pick up First Light's new women's merino wool and get free shipping on all orders containing women's gear. Available now at F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E dot com.